So the United States shares a very important relationship, which is an alliance with the Republic of North Korea. And it is an alliance that is strong and enduring. We are now entering the home stretch ahead of the midterm election. For months, political analysts have said a red wave is coming. A referendum on inflation, illegal immigration, indoctrination. How are Democrats mitigating that red wave? It's why people don't trust people like you, because you peddle false narratives. And so we disabuse you of those narratives. You and I have a rendezvous with death. Welcome back to the Ruthless Variety program. It's one of my favorite programs of the year because we bring in the head honchos of the House and Senate Republican Super PACs. Uh, Stephen Law of SLF and Dan Constant of CLF to give you the download. Like the real, I mean, these guys, they manage like $400 million of a plus. Well, there's a, you know, there's a lot of conservative media out there talking about the election, obviously. But very few of them have the inside track to talk to people like Dan Constant and Stephen Law. It's right. these, wild. These guys. It's wild. We get to give like listeners right. congratulations. You get to have this on for one free. show. So like if you if you care at all about the facts of this election, these are two guys you got to listen to, right? Because they are look for better or worse, they are ninety percent of the spending in these Republican federal races. Yeah, but if you just watch cable news, you see a lot of people on there pontificating about what's going to happen in the midterms, and those people haven't looked at a single poll or crosstab or spent a single red cent in any of these races. Now you're going to get to talk to people who are going to spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars over the next five weeks. Yeah, it's exactly right. And they're going to give you the ins and the outs of everything, and I just love it. It's for those of you who really like campaigns and elections and have an invested uh preference one way or another we know which way it is if you're listening to us uh these are the guys to listen to so we've got that coming up uh our sponsor today is masterworks we'll get to that uh in a moment but can we get back to what we opened this show with kamala talking about the enduring relationship we have with north korea i didn't know that like the republic of north korea is a huge ally (laughs) this is news to me she's standing in south korea at one point, looking through binoculars uh, across to the, across the DMZ, yeah, yeah. no, it's a real Veep quality to the whole thing. Oh, I mean, could she get any dumber? HBO writers are like, we can't make this shit up. Like, it doesn't get any better. We never came up with anything like this on Veep, where she's like, we have an enduring alliance <laughs> with North Korea, and all the South Koreans are like, what the fuck? <laughs> the the uh, bracket man got busy in the. Yeah. Uh, in a hurry in the in the vice president's office, uh, I, I forgot about the, the the her looking through the binoculars from from the other side. Th- that is very funny content if you haven't seen it because she's literally she's looking at North Korea from South Korea, and she's like, "So that's it, huh?" And they're like, "Yes, ma'am, uh, that's North Korea through the other side of the binoculars." She's like, "Oh, right there on the other side. Wow, that's it." <laughs> it's just the most- guy, guy, guy looks at her and goes, "Yeah, it's." It's 500 meters that way. <laughs> That's what it is. I mean, she just, oh, so bad. It's just all so bad. California is not sending their best. They really no, are. they really are they not. Really, they need to be downgraded to colony status. <laughs> <laughs> I think on a probationary period. I mean, she's so bad. But, but it actually ties into the first thing we were going to talk about. Wanted to give an update. Uh, you'll recall from our, our discussion last week on the hurricane the pending hurricane, we, we taped an episode where both Duncan and I's family were basically in the eye of the darn thing. Uh, 
it worked out for them. Uh, for them, uh, clearly not a fun experience, but they didn't have major flooding as many, many people in that area did. Uh, it, I mean, just... A, it, well, it, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah. It, it worked. I mean, look, it was not easy. Right. And I don't know about you, Duncan, my, like my folks lost all ability to communicate with the outside world oh. at about six o'clock last Thursday and like didn't get it back until the next day. The only reason they did get it back, by the way, is because DeSantis rolled the uh, portable cell phone cell towers. towers. Those I've were heard hu- about that. Those I've were huge, huge, huge. Yeah. I mean, you know, you get really nervous when your family's impacted by a storm and it it just suddenly goes radio silent and you can't get any updates being able to get those updates was great it was like yeah i mean maybe you don't have tv uh but just you know being able to text or call your parent it just real peace uh, of mind like a couple things so number one there has to be like a lot of credit given to desantis for the amount of work he put and the foresight that he had in that kind of infrastructure like yes you would naturally think we need to like declare an emergency activate national guard you know for for search and rescue things like that which he's been on top of but also like he got elon musk on board to like move satellites in space to ensure that like first responders can have like uplinks and internet connections so that they can communicate with everybody incredible like that is outstanding work yeah outstanding work yeah it, it it is and here's where the kamala tie comes into this you may not have heard her audio in the run-up to the hurricane this is what she had this a portion of what she had to say which is that it is our um, lowest income communities and our communities of color that are most impacted by these extreme conditions and and impacted by by issues that are not of their own making so what she was saying in the longer clip basically and she took a ton of heat for this is that they ought to prioritize things like search and rescue and rebuilding and everything to basically racial statuses. It, which is, I mean, this is so, to me, this is the most disgusting thing. Is uh, I, I think, what, what was it? Was it um, Rhode Island, which during the vaccine rollout was like, we're going to try and prioritize vaccines by skin color, which is like, this is a, 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 a horrific like natural disaster to try and divide people in any way, let alone by like racial lines is horrific. Like how, how is that leadership to try and divide people during a, a crisis? It also shows absolutely no understanding of what people, real people deal with in disasters. We have another clip. This one comes from the ground in Arcadia, Florida. And I appreciate that gentleman for pointing out this is a family program. Yeah. <laughs> this is eyewitness testimony. This is somebody on the ground in Florida talking about what Ron DeSantis is doing, and Ron DeSantis is helping. And you know what? Like, the media is so enraged because, like, uh, you know, we saw a number of articles which are talking about how, like, the ultimate test for any Florida governor is their response to a hurricane. And it's becoming more and more clear by the day that DeSantis, like, threw his back into it, 
made sure that the people are taken care of and that like an emergency response was in place to ensure that people could communicate, could have access to fuel. And and like there, there's a it's, vacuum right now for for a narrative where there where the left was like so much hoping for a situation that like here's how we're gonna get DeSantis, here's how we're gonna attack him, and like sorry, but he actually did yep, a good job. He's doing a great job, and I know that you're you're a Jeb guy, but and Jeb, <laughs> Jeb was competent as a governor, but since Jeb, there we just haven't seen this level of competence in the state of Florida from the governor's office. And I think Ron DeSantis is a real breath who's, of fresh air. Who's the governor since? I mean, like, they've, I, they've had some good governors, right? I don't even remember. They haven't had but, them, right? But Ron DeSantis is head and shoulders above everybody else. Listen, I, I have to tell you, to me, these two clips illustrate the most remarkable difference between today's Republican Party and today's Democratic Party, right? Where you've got the vice president of the United States sitting in some you know well-draped room mm-hmm. discussing so that's such know, a good ex- such a good description yeah <laughs> from, from like her you know oh yeah comfortable status a, a nice ballroom press conference yeah she's talking about prioritizing communities of color in hurricane relief because that's equity and that's what we yep, do yep. and that's that's important and it's all important and, and like if you listen to the longer clip like it's clearly a room full of activists yep. and another she was like communities of color and there's a woman who's like and women you know and it's yeah, like oh right. yeah all the marginalized like that's the only thing we care about meanwhile a actual community in florida which by the way is a community of color entirely underwater the republican governor is prioritizing and making sure that these people get help. That's the thing, right? Is is, is the, the, to the left, it's all about like words and terms and paying lip service, mm-hmm. but not action. Like, the, like uh, it's one thing for Kamala to be like, "Oh yes, I'm going to pay lip service to what equity is and helping communities right. of color." She doesn't give a shit. Is Kamala down there trying to make sure that these people have access to fuel? No, Governor DeSantis is making sure right. He's that just everybody getting, in Florida's got access. Right. To he's fuel getting communication. shit. He's getting shit done because nobody has time for CRT and all of this theory when people are drowning. Right. You just exactly. You run in there and you solve the problem. You fish them out and you make sure to get people housed, clothed, fed. And then you figure out how to rebuild. Like, right. I, like doesn't matter what the community looks like. Right. I saw that video of of Governor DeSantis like uh, making hash browns at the Waffle House for first responders. Right. Yo, that was, was a like, great video. That is like, that's what it's about. Like he's at, like in that moment, what it is is it's a governor who's in a position of power showing his respect to folks who are on the front lines, getting the job done, saving lives. That's what that moment is all about. And you know, as an aside, interesting little factoid about Waffle House. You know the uh, National Weather Service actually uses Waffle Houses as a metric for how serious a storm is because I mean you know seriously Waffle seriously this is dead serious Waffle Houses do not close period <laughs> like they they can have a storm they can have so any, like, like if if they're like this if, is a Waffle House if a Waffle House closes they call the National Weather Service and like we're out we're out like it's that bad. Oh man! And so like they use that as a metric to be like, okay, that ser- that that area is clearly you know in, in a very serious situation. Um, so him like it, on multiple levels, DeSantis doing that shows that he is like right there on the front lines. Well, I, I just like that he gets the job done wherever it is, right? right? I mean, the media was all congregated in Tampa 
because they thought it was coming to Tampa and it came, you know, significantly south of that, impacted communities basically across the state. The community that that, that gentleman was from that was talking about voting for DeSantis, it's Arcadia, right? And it's substantially inland from where the hurricane hit. How many miles exactly? I don't know. But it was entirely underwater because it's, it's there's a bunch of rivers that sort of run through there that crested and, and completely drowned the community. Mm. I mean, it was as bad or worse than the flooding anywhere in the state of Florida was in that particular community. Like, was this about DeSantis just sitting in Tampa trying to figure it out like the media? No, no. Like, he, all of a sudden, you got communities like this with meaningful help, the likes of which that guy can testify to. Meanwhile, you got VP Harris, who's sitting around in her ass, like, basically pontificating about That's it. What, the, what the color of the skin of the recipient of the help should, should and I be. Mean, I, think I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. I think that's the thing that's going to become super apparent in these midterms is that when voters are going and seeing which side is concerned and actually acting on their concerns, you know, because yeah. voters care about inflation. In Florida right now, it's become very clear that, you know, they are suffering through a natural disaster, and they're seeing one side who's like, oh, we're going to talk about like equity, whatever. And the other side's like, I'm gonna send a fuel truck. Yeah, I'm gonna go make I'm gonna go make sure it happens. But here's the other fun little wrinkle to this story, because if you've watched DeSantis bat away like liberal press left just, and right during this thing, it. Crushing just, it. just crushing them. But their their latest thing was trying to somehow insinuate that there is a double standard because DeSantis criticizes everything that Biden does, then also receiving FEMA help and praising the administration for providing female like what kind of governor would you be to even conceive of a world where you wouldn't accept help from the federal government to make sure your people are okay right like imagine if some they think that oh but oh we we got them (laughs) we we really got them this time (laughs) did they did they ever call in like any dem governor to be like no don't ask president trump for help during this natural crisis right you never heard like during the oh you're gonna take trump's money yeah you know right nobody said that no nobody said they had they have to just create these fake controversies and try to find a way to drive a wedge between you know DeSantis and the Biden they administration, they create these fake narratives right. that we right. disabuse them. Right. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Well, right. listen, you got to listen to this one thing from Politico, and then we can move on. DeSantis has been a critic of Biden on nearly every policy front, but he sure does does like pres- the president's wallet. The president's wallet. The pre- like it's not our tax money. Yeah, it's not our tax money. The president's Joe Biden. wallet. He made he made it through his son selling it. <laughs> Influence and, and access, yeah. Incredible, right? It's incredible. Just amazing. Well, I know. Look, it's got to be a tough time for anybody to think about where they're going to put money into things because, like, basically, you got to put it in the grocery store. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the world's on fire. I mean, uh, I think we covered that. We've had three quarters of the S and P down. Yeah. Everything looks like it's going to zero. It's awful. Yep. It's a terrible Gro- time. Groceries or gas. Terrible, terrible time. So people are thinking about all sorts of creative things. If you have any money to spend, of, of how to, where do you invest this kind of stuff? One of the things that we've talked about uh, on the program is this idea of masterworks. That's right. And they have come into a really sort of innovative idea, which is commoditizing basically works of contemporary art. And under the guise and understanding that art, particularly in tough financial times, 
appreciates much quicker than almost anything else in the marketplace. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty good. It's. I mean, honestly, it's a pretty brilliant idea that they came up with. Is you know, it's it's very difficult for anybody to be like, all right, well, I'm going to buy a Banksy. I got twenty million dollars. So I'm going to go buy it, and, <laughs> no and I'm going to know that. like in a year the Banksy is going to be twenty five million dollars. Don't sell it, make five mil. I mean, most people aren't really able to, to to be in a position to make that kind of a decision. If you are, you know, feel free to wire me some of it. But anyway, <laughs> the thing is that like coming up with the idea of okay, what if we we split it up? Right, almost the same thing as like like uh, like the stock market. So we split it up into shares and let people get in on the ground floor. Of, of like buying a bank seat and having ownership of it. And then, I mean, the track record that they've had of like buying a piece of art, you know, all of the investors get a piece of it. And then a year later they sell it for, I mean, I've seen examples that said like 20% in one year. Well, I mean, the facts are the facts. So contemporary art appreciated at an average of 33% per year, according to the MW All Art Index. Wow. I mean, that's just an obnoxiously huge that's, number, that's right? That's awesome. And I don't think anybody's trying to guarantee any sort of like uh, results like that, but it's an interesting idea, particularly if you're sort of into this stuff. So so far, Masterworks has sold six paintings mm-hmm. at an average net return of twenty nine percent. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty good. And like, just as a reminder, the market's down twenty percent. Yeah, right. Well, so yeah. you don't need to be an investment advisor, and we are not investment advisors. We certainly are not that. <laughs> And you don't need to be passing out investment advice, which we certainly are not per- passing out investment advice. However, the market being down 20% is a very difficult situation for a lot of people. Yeah. And it, I mean, I think that the really great thing about, you know, this partnership that we got going uh, with Masterworks is people have seen these returns. I think the word has gotten out, uh, you know, about how they've posted 29% returns on their last six pieces. And there's essentially there's a line to be able to get in on this. Yeah. Except for you, dear listener. You uh-huh. are, and you can skip it with our special code. To join, you simply go to masterworks.com and use the promo code RUTHLESS. Again, that's masterworks.com, promo code RUTHLESS. you got to see important Regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io backslash CD. Remember, this is Masterworks. Uh, all right, so transitioning quickly, I had to flag this one because, uh, look, growing up in Minnesota, we take this stuff very seriously. It's I saw a, the video on this. this. is wild. Wild deal. So there's a walleye fishing tournament. This one was happening in Cleveland, which apparently is like the crowns, the fishermen of the year, right? It's, so, it's good walleye in Cleveland. It's not like Minnesota, it? but it's... No, it's, Minnesota, I can tell you from personal experience, Minnesota walleye is delicious. It's yeah, great but stuff. It's good. It's good. It's good. So, but anyway, they're having this tournament. And I don't know if you've seen the video on this, fellas. Yeah, I saw it. But the guys who were... <laughs> Honestly, I think he has a smart play. I think he went overboard. But let's, <laughs> let's, let's discuss what He happened. went overboard. <laughs> well, the upshot, I'm going to read some of this first. And I think I should do it in like a Minnesota fisherman type it. deal. Jason Fisher knew two fishermen needed their catch to weigh in at 16 pounds. To secure the Team of the Year award competition in Cleveland on Friday. <laughs> Eyeballing their entry, the tournament director figured that it would be an easy clear with five fish he estimated weighed about 20 pounds. <laughs> when the scale hit nearly 34 pounds, he grew suspicious. <laughs> kind of deflated me, he said, because I knew it just wasn't right. This is what the guy said told the Washington Post. So Fisher grabbed one of the fish 
Sounds like, sounds like we got Chuck Grassley he in ran, here. Ran his hand over the stomach, <laughs> and he squeezed it. Yeah, and he felt something hard. <laughs> Too hard. He sliced open the dead walleye and plunged his hands into its flesh, rooted around until he found something he hoped he wouldn't find. Waits. Waits. <laughs> this guy, so these two fishermen put like, I, it looked like seven or eight. See, they went overboard. They put like a barbell in this fish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it looked like a miniature shot put. Yeah, yeah. You should yeah. shoot for, like, I, I mean, I don't know the mean weight of this fish, but I would go for like, Four or five, you well, know, they four also, or five pounds, and I bet you get away with it. Well, as Josh, as Josh was saying earlier, you know what a seven-pound walleye looks like. Yeah. You know what an eight-pound walleye looks like. You can tell well, just it's, by looking yeah, at it. Yeah, it's not. I mean, these are not whales that you're. You know, this is not this a guy, tarpon. This, this guy is like threw a, a like barbell on the fish and was like, hey, "Be cool." Yeah, <laughs> shut up. It's good. But <laughs> it, like, it wasn't just weights. They also put walleye fillets. fillets. Yeah, to pat it. To pat it. Well, it couldn't pull one over on the guy. Here. Yeah. Yeah. But but so the video is him cutting this thing open and pulling this deals out, and all of a sudden you hear all the other competitors. They're like, "Hey, wait a minute!" Yeah. Everybody, and I mean, I it felt like these guys were gonna have a you, real you, tough. I mean, night. you got tar and feather the guy. Like to me, that seems like a situation. Right, you're not fishing. I know this is competitive fishing, but you're, look, I'm not fishing all day and being sober. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. so that crowd was getting rowdy. They were ready. <laughs> they were ready. <laughs> And like a walleye, if, if you're a professional fisherman, yeah. which I am a long way from a professional fisherman, but I know damn well what a seven pound walleye looks like. Yeah. And these guys rolled in with a couple of like three and a half, four pound walleye stuff full of four pounds of weight. But that's it was like they went so overboard with it. Like but the I saw sticks, them pulling the weights from this thing. It's like, dude, what? Like, <laughs> you trying to curl this fish? But like, the what stakes are you doing? Were, the stakes are pretty high. The stakes are pretty high. They won like hundreds of thousands of. Yeah, so this tournament was like thirty grand, but they had won like three hundred. Yeah, with all of their previous winnings for the year that qualified them for this tournament. So like now that's all in, in question. Wow. Huh? Wow. How about that? My pals in Minnesota are going to look down on that kind of thing. Yeah. I have a few that I would accuse of doing something similar to that, but that's <laughs> it's. There's no place for it. No place for it. Um, I mean, but like, uh, I, I two things. Uh, number one, I love that when we get to hang out and have drinks, your actual Minnesota accent comes out. <laughs> it's like a great thing to hear, and I'm happy everyone got to hear. But like, the the whole thing was ridiculous. I ca I can't remember what weights they used, but like, they're just enormous. Like, it was super obvious when they cut the thing open. It was. It looked like a shot put. That's yeah, what Ashford it was said. You get like a, a cube of tungsten feed it to the fish, you know? <laughs> and no one would know. No one would know. Probably no easy endeavor getting those suckers in there. To be honest, I mean they were big. They were really big. Anyway, all right. So that's our. Uh, our animal update um let's talk the economy for a minute this a couple of headlines caught my eye i know smug they probably caught yours mm -hmm. uh s p 500 and nasdaq post three straight quarterly declines for the first time since 2008 2009 weird yeah. i wonder well, when i went on then yeah it was it was not a happy economic time um I, the, the thing is that there are so many indicators right now that are flashing um, the one McDaniel put in here, the PCE, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Inflation Measure, uh, he said the New York Times here, it says, which is the measure of the Fed officially targets uh, as it tries to achieve 2% annual inflation, climbed 6.2% over the year through August. I mean, the thing is, is that uh, I think a lot of folks in in politics 
and a lot of journalists have not really understood that while they may not feel the impact of all of this, the voters do. Working yep. class Americans absolutely feel uh, the, 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 the force of inflation, which is right now crippling you know, their wallets across the country. And then when you, when you have uh, the S&P and the NASDAQ post three straight quarterly declines, I mean, the, the stories which have, have started coming out is like you've got these large tech companies which have not just, you know, they've had a hiring freeze, but now they're starting layoffs, right? Yeah. So the shoe is beginning to drop. Um, you know, the other, the other shoe is about to drop, and, and you're seeing companies with a lack of demand from consumers who are like, I can't buy as much stuff because of inflation. Now these companies are going to be like, well, I guess we got to let people go. So, so we're starting to see the signs of – the policies that this administration has put into place, which are hurting companies, which are hurting growth, which are hurting small businesses, well, I mean, three straight quarters of, of, of the market being down is, I mean, if that's not canary in a coal mine, I don't know what is. Well, it, it, it is. But what else is, is, you know, that national gas average that the Biden administration has been talking about mm-hmm. in a very uneducated way over the last couple of weeks? Mm-hmm. Well, it turns out it's going back up again. Yeah. Right. And now you can't blame it on se- on cyclical, seasonal, driving season type stuff. Like it's basically a supply and, and demand thing. Uh, today's national average for a gallon of gas is three eighty, up seven cents from a week ago. But but look, I think in a lot of different areas, probably many of you listening, it's nowhere near three eighty, right? Right. I mean, <clears throat> I got a, a text from somebody last week in Reno, Nevada sitting at their gas station where the the price for a regular was way over six bucks. My God. And and we're talking about October, right? I mean, you're getting into a place where you start looking at like home heating oil in Northeast Mm -hmm. and the the upper Midwest and things like that. Like it'll begin, this will be a bigger story than people imagine it has been basically at since, I don't know, 15 years. I mean, that's the thing is, is you're going to have voters who are going to get their energy bill for October, that first week of November. And it's going to, it's going to blow their minds because it's going to be 50% higher than it was a year ago. And they will be able to connect the dots directly to an administration which has done everything it can to cripple American energy dependence. From day one, Joe Biden issued a number of executive orders crippling American energy independence. And the result of that is the pain that they're feeling today. And meanwhile, while their bills are going up, you have Joe Biden and Karine Jean-Pierre. Mm-hmm. <laughs> citing national numbers to say oh it's not going up as much as you think an inch and so they sound like they're so out of touch and you have people on the ground you know every state is different it's a very big country every state is different there's some of these states like you mentioned nevada your your buddy who's uh mentioned the reno gas station it's stayed high in nevada even even like yeah, never really went it never down. really went down yeah. and so the whole time Democrats are trying to convince people that they're not these gas prices aren't as high as they think and, and they're putting a hundred bucks into their station wagon. That that heating oil thing that you touched on, Holmes, that's a real, real problem. It's a thing. So, you know, my old house, um, don't tell the EPA, but had oil heat for sure. when it got really, really cold. And <clears throat> you know, I don't live there anymore, but um periodically I get some of the old mail forwarded. And the oil heating company sent out a letter to all customers warning them about price spikes. Really? And that, like, it's you're going to, when you get your first oil heat bill, like, you are going to be shocked. 
Oh. And they're sort of laying the groundwork for that so that people realize how expensive it is. And in fact, like they were also warning people that like, you know, if you need to get it filled, like you have to let us know. Otherwise, you may be out of luck in some of the coldest months of the year. Oh, the last, man. Like, think about that. The that last, is- last time Democrats did anything about heating oil, they raised taxes on it by billions of dollars. Yeah. yeah. Just last month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these people, Jesus. So, so if that's not bad enough, from Bloomberg, household net worth decreased $6.1 trillion yeah. in the April through June period, or 4.1%, the most on record per quarter. This is per Bloomberg. And basically all that's saying is that there has never been any recorded ev- evidence of Americans losing so much money, so much of their worth, as there has in this past quarter. I mean, that's just horrific. If you think about that, I mean, think about the stuff we've been through, right? It, just in, in my sort of adult lifetime with 9-11 and then obviously the financial collapse and crisis of 08 and 09, mm-hmm. what they're saying is that those two things were not as significant as the loss that families experienced over the last quarter. I mean, are you kidding me? That's that, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. Wild, wild stuff. So anyway, what's the Fed up to? We know they're raising interest rates, but this is unbelievable. Six banks uh, to participate in Fed climate risk analysis pilot. This is according to the Washington Examiner. Especially in the face of everything that we've discussed, this like ESG garbage. The fact that like, despite the pain that American families are feeling, this administration is hell-bent on pushing this absolute garbage Absolute garbage, and and to punish consumers even more. The Federal Reserve announced Thursday that six of the country's largest banks will participate in a pilot climate risk analysis exercise to begin next year. I mean, who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? I can't believe they have the audacity to announce something like that. It just goes to show how out of touch all these people Mm -hmm. are. Like, what the hell are you doing? I mean, I guarantee no one in this White House at all is concerned or feels the brunt of any of their policy decisions, which is why they make them. Oh. Which is why you've got Kamala in, in in a well-draped room being like, oh, we want equity. Because she's not out there trying to help people make sure that they can have fuel. Totally. Totally. All right. So uh, before we get to our next segment, I think we should talk Senate races here for a bit. And there's nobody that's better at talking Senate races than Stephen Law. Uh, so let's get right to it. I want to welcome to the program a good friend of mine, somebody you've heard here before on the Variety program. Uh, probably been about it. Well, been a little bit, though. Yeah, it has been, yeah. Um, listen, so we've been busy. We have been busy. We have been busy. So this is this is the granddaddy super PAC, as I like to call him. He is the president and CEO of the Senate Leadership Fund, Stephen Law. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you've been at this a little while. <laughs> Long in the tooth is what they say. <laughs> <laughs> you've earned the granddaddy super PAC. I, I feel like I have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, listen, you guys do Senate races. And um, there's nobody that works harder, raises more, or does more than you all to do that. And thank God you're doing it. I saw a couple of stats last week where you guys were, were 95-plus percent of the total Republican spending in a number of targeted states, which, you know, look, as a campaign guy, that gives me a little bit of heartache. But I'm glad you're doing it because if you're not, uh, uh, nobody else would be. But so as we sit here in October, what do you think? I think things are looking a lot better. But before we get started, though, I do have a little breaking news. Sure. You know, at SLF, we we do pick up a fair amount of scuttlebutt, you know, and uh, we've heard that uh, 
any day now, news is going to come out that uh, President Biden's going to announce his reelection probably even before this election. Is that uh, right? Yeah, and, and he's picked out his campaign theme song, oh, uh, which is- it's going to be, yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, LMFAO uh, party <laughs> rock anthem, uh, particularly that part, every day I'm shuffling. shuffling. <laughs> And this is this is even bigger news. He's going to change out his running mate. I mean, Kamala Harris has done a fantastic job, of course, but they figure it's time to you know kind of let her rest up and run for her next uh, gig. And so they're going to pick John Fetterman, whether he wins or not. And, and you know, Pennsylvania is an important state, but even more importantly, they figure that John Fetterman is the one guy out there as a running mate who could make Joe Biden sound articulate. <laughs> You came well prepared. Steve. Well, you know, I, you got to bring it when you're on ruthless. I, you know, you can't just sit around and talk about election stats every minute. Every but, day uh, I'm yeah. shuffling. That is good. That is good. I didn't see that. That's great. But uh, you know, I uh, you you know asked about how how we feel about the cycle. We all went through the doldrums of August, where yeah. all the conversation was about the Dobbs decision and about the FBI's visit to uh, Mar-a-Lago, and you know the press is just so desperate to talk about any subject besides inflation, looming recession, crime, broken borders, and everything else that is making your average uh, American voter quite anxious and worried about the fact that they've handed total government control over to the Democrats and they've completely screwed things up. And so now what's happening is, despite uh, the press's efforts to continue that gigantic distraction campaign, people are saying, wait a minute, my 401k is worth nothing. (laughs) It's evaporating. Right, I I go to the grocery store, I'm paying higher prices than I've ever paid, despite these promises that it's all gonna get Yeah, what about the Inflation Reduction Act, Stephen? I thought that was gonna take care of it. it's going to kick in any second now, you know. I mean, well, Joe Biden said, you know, we only went up just a little bit, just so maybe a, yeah. an inch. Yeah, an inch, which just is an interesting metric for for inflation. Yeah, <laughs> it's measured in inches, but anyway. Right. So I, I think voters are starting to think like typical midterm voters. They're saying, mm-hmm. uh, "Country's being run by Democrats. I don't like the outcome. Uh, I'm looking for a check and balance on the power and uh, in in D.C. And we're seeing that reflected in polling. And these different races are starting to click into line. And the other part too, it's not just atmospherics. We're seeing campaigns start to really perform, draw a clear contrast with the Democrats. Uh, we're obviously out there pointing out the deficiencies of these Democratic candidates as our as our, our friends on the House side, Congressional Leadership Fund, and it's having an impact. People are saying, you know what, it is time for some new leadership in Washington, and they're paying attention to our message and our candidates. So yeah, it's looking no, I mean, good. No, no question. I mean, we've talked about this before on the program, and I think you and I are of one mind on this, is that in a midterm in particular, just takes a little while for ballot questions to match up with the political environment yeah right mm-hmm. and on top of that you had like five to one democratic spending all summer long completely right yeah right mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be surprising that you hit the first of september and you have some democratic advantages but as we went through september now into october looks like most of the sort of inflated bump has gone away and it, it looks a little bit more like it did at the beginning of the summer right absolutely true and, and and the other thing too is that there were some republicans not any of us or the people we work with who had this attitude that we'll just ride the red wave it'll be we'll just get on the surfboard and ride on the wet red wave but red waves don't just happen you have to make them happen well that's smug that smug's saying yeah absolutely yeah and right i learned it from listening to ruthless <laughs> you, you just i just take what i hear on ruthless and i apply it every day and I'm that's excellent shape. excellent yeah. stuff <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but that's exactly right that you, we, Democrats almost always uh, dominate summer spending, 
and uh, we'd love to match them in that. But uh, my uh, dad, uh, James McKnight Law, would frequently say, "The problem is, son, you can only spend the same dollar once. You know, you <laughs> spend it once, you can't spend it a second time." Right. Democrats do have almost unlimited money because of all the people who are looking for you know salt tax relief in uh, Manhattan and San Francisco. They they pay a lot for that. They haven't gotten the full satisfaction they want, but they pay a lot for it. And so we've got to husband our resources to the time when people are really paying attention, which is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're at least evening the score more or less in these key races. And and you're right. Also, voters are paying attention. They're saying, what's going on? There's a midterm. I hadn't thought about it too much. And who's running in these statewide races? And this is the moment, I think, that we're really seeing that midterm mojo crystallize. Yeah. And I think it's worth clarifying for our audience who, who doesn't do this for a living, sort of the role that you all play, right? I mean, you don't recruit the candidates. You don't talk to the candidates. You don't build the candidates oppo files you don't write their ads you don't deal with anything in the campaign side you basically act as the outside sort of advocacy unit once these candidates and campaigns are set to try to get republicans elected yep that's right in your lead up i was expecting you to do that little bit from office space where you say what is it you say you do around here you deal with the customers um no you're right i mean because uh, we raise money on unlimited amounts uh, the the restriction on us is we can't coordinate with candidates and that means we can't ask them what uh we should do and we can't uh tell them what we're doing we have to operate independently but we we're kind of like a para campaign i mean the the ads that you see typically could be just as easily run by the campaign but we're an amplification system and um i think that's led to some misconceptions uh you know sometimes you see a candidate come along and they just think that it all gets done by the super PAC and and that it does seem like there's more of that this cycle than there usually (laughs) is right right it's just a full service operation you just show up uh you know pay the filing fee and then everybody takes you the rest of the way there but you always have to have a candidate to close the sale at the end of the day the voter needs to know the person they're voting for especially in a statewide race like senate and governor they need to know who that person is and so if they don't if they've never even seen the candidate you know we can say all that we want about the other side and try to disqualify them and sometimes that works if the conditions are right but um but typically we're amplifying an overall message and theme in that race yeah well and you've done it well over the years i mean you know look we got within an eyelash of holding the majority in 2020 but from 2014 to 2020 held the majorities um now of course it's a split senate so it's all on the line here and we've seen over the last two years basically what unified democratic majorities and this president are capable of right i mean look outside look at your grocery store it's that this is it yeah this is it so the environment here is ready for change at some level as we look at the map it's not the best map republicans have ever had no i mean i think what what complicates it is we've had a significant number of retirements that have opened up seats that probably we would have held without much difficulty pennsylvania ohio for example if we had had our incumbents in place Mm -hmm. Uh, missouri we fortunately were able to solve in the primary but uh, you know these are states that now you have to litigate and spend real resources on Uh, and then in addition to that uh, you know our arguably most endangered incumbent senator ron johnson is running in wisconsin which has been a real swingy uh, state Uh, So we've got to hold our own real estate, and that's the first part that we're focused on. But we're feeling increasingly good about that. I think Ron Johnson is going to beat uh, Mandela Barnes running away. I mean, Running running one of the sneaky best campaigns of the cycle. Absolutely. Smart, clever, funny. Uh, He's enjoying himself. And uh, and, and 
you know, the Democrats definitely cleared the field for Barnes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what they promised uh, these other guys, uh, Alex Lazary and uh, Sharon <clears throat> Godlewski. Uh, but uh, either one of them would have been stronger opponents, uh, and and you know, Barnes is is really far left wing on a variety of issues, everything from crime to uh, Medicare for all. He's he's just right down the line Bernie Sanders uh, guy, and, uh, and and you know Ron Johnson running a good race. And Barnes hasn't had an untweeted liberal thought for the last ten years. Everything he's, <laughs> everything that's gone into his left wing mind, he just puts right back out in 140 <laughs> characters. That, that's an absolutely great point. Yeah, I mean I remember. Uh, one of uh, McConnell's many aphorisms is not every thought needs to be expressed. But, but nobody nobody told that to Mandela Barnes. So it was just all out there. There's a great story that came out the other day, just his long history of tweeting his deepest, innermost thoughts on everything. I mean, not just politics, but uh, kind of weird things. You know, it's a, it's a but. Uh, I always so, thought that Democrats, by the way, I always thought that they did what they did in Wisconsin with Mandela Barnes as a reaction to the 12 plus years that Chuck Schumer basically tried to ace out every african-american from a primary across the country it's so true it was one of the yeah. most untold stories going even after 2020 yeah is that they had you know good qualified african-american candidates running in democratic primaries that the national democratic party basically just pushed out so i, I always felt like they they started to get a little dust up on that and so Wisconsin was like, okay, well, we're going to head in a different direction. See, we're like an inclusive party again. That's right. Great, that's yeah, a great right. point. Yeah. I mean, because how else do you describe Mandela Barnes is easily the most unelectable. Like you said, every liberal tweet thought was tweeted out. I mean, this is a genuine progressive. Yeah, yeah. And a complete failure of the very simplest task of vetting, too. I mean, all that was out there, ready to be seen. And it's like nobody uh, in Schumer world stopped to think, well, when all of his crazy left-wing ideas on releasing criminals come out, how's how's that going to work for us? (laughs) Particularly in a state that has seen its share of of really devastating crime and violence. I mean, just, uh, and and how, uh, you know, Barnes was really an outlier. You know, after the Waukesha uh, Christmas parade massacre, there was, you know, even fairly liberal Democrats said, you know, we probably need to crack down on, on uh, you know, cash bail and, and make it more stringent. <laughs> Not Mandela Barnes. He's still, you know, <laughs> no, let's get rid of that sucker. You know, <laughs> put him back out on the street. That's where they belong. Um, but but yeah, it, it, they, they've really changed in how they've handled some of these primaries. So in, in, in all of the incumbent states that you mentioned, you mentioned feeling pretty good about them. Uh, I noticed you're still doing a lot of work in two in particular. Uh, We'll get to Pennsylvania in a minute, but Ohio and North Carolina. Uh, Tighter than you expected, I imagine. Yeah, and uh, you know, part of it is that uh, J.D. Vance had to get through a pretty bruising primary. D- didn't have a, a very substantial campaign uh, going into that primary. Came out, you know, with with debt and kind of struggling with a, a beat up image because of uh, Club for Growth ads against him. Um, it just happens. Uh, and then uh, you know, Tim Ryan is kind of a poor man's Bill Clinton. I mean, the guy is able to communicate effectively. He comes across as this MAGA Democrat. Whereas, in fact, he is basically uh, a male, you know, AOC, if you look at his voting record. I mean, just right down the line, everything that, 
Nancy Pelosi wants. No questions asked. He's going to vote for it. Wait, this is the guy that earlier on in his congressional career made a big stink about not supporting Nancy Pelosi and then turned around and voted for her every time. Yeah, he, I mean, he's basically a fraud. I mean, when yeah. Tim, Tim Ryan's talking, he's lying. I mean, it's just the guy just <laughs> makes it. But he's very good at it. He's compelling. Like I said, there's a little bit of Bill Clinton to him. And he's run a smart race. He got out early. He's been raising a lot of money, spending a lot of money going after uh, Vance. And so at the end of the day, this is a state that voted for uh, Donald Trump by eight points in the last two presidential elections. Uh, and, and I do think that the narrative that Ryan has constructed uh, is just simply false. And so what we're doing is just pulling out the bricks like a game of Zenga and pretty soon it's going to come down, you know, but, uh, but it's going to take some work. And it's that's why a, it's we're uncouth for me to ask, but what is the investment in Ohio? How, what, what kind of dollars are we talking about? That wouldn't all in. It's, it's going to be $35 million, oh, wow. which is not a small amount. Yes. <laughs> not a cheap state. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, you should have fixed this, John Ashbrook. I yeah, mean, you're from that state. I mean, yeah, there, there are a few media markets in the state of Ohio. <laughs> turns out. Wow. $35 million. Yeah. Uh, North Carolina. North it's similar um, in some ways. Again, uh, Ted Budd came out of that primary, uh, you know, relatively small campaign operation. Most of that uh, delivered really by uh, Club for Growth. But he's a good guy. He's a hardworking guy. And he's now on the air. I think that'll change the dynamic uh, a fair amount. And uh, But he's also up against someone who's raised a significant amount of money. I don't think she's as skilled a politician as Tim Ryan, but she's won statewide elections as a judge. I mean, she mm -hmm. has won. So she's not... Uh, a, a newbie in the political process and uh, you know, get some money and you put it on the air and the ads have been okay so it's been uh, and and also North Carolina is not Ohio it, it is much more of a, of a close state than people uh, realize at the end of the day I think uh, we should be fine there I think it is a state it breaks that, fairly late too, yeah right? yes exactly well we found that uh, in in all of the North Carolina Senate races we've been involved in uh, I, I just feel at some point North Carolina has got to pay us back because we have been very heavily invested in that <laughs> state for the last several cycles there and was that episode of kissing cal that i remember from last cycle right john Wasn't oh yeah sure that? sure he was the candidate that yeah. got caught yeah okay that was a that was a favorite of the variety program <laughs> in our in our infancy in our early days uh but you know the most cringeworthy tweets you'd ever read you know it's like <laughs> maximum cringe <laughs> so all right, so let, let me put one more incumbent race. I know you're looking at this. We all feel good about it, but nobody talks about Florida. Yes. Um, Marco Rubio, a well-funded opponent there. Yes. You know, everything we've seen shows that uh, Rubio's in good shape. Uh, I, think, I think the senator has not taken this race for granted at all. He's worked hard. He's raised money, and he's you know, mostly kept up with the gigantic Act Blue money machine that's funding uh, Val Deming. Deming's got, uh, you know, some, some proof points on her bio that uh, superficially are appealing. They're the police chief background in Orlando, which is an important part of the uh, winning coalition geographically for the state. But she's, again, been one of these down the line, whatever Nancy Pelosi wants, Nancy yeah. Pelosi gets liberals. I mean, it, you've, you and I have talked about this. The thing that's so remarkable about just about every Democrat running for Senate, really, actually, without exception, uh, every Democrat running for Senate and every Democrat running the House is they all voted for all of it. Yeah. And none of them even put their hand up and said, you know, I, I think we should do a little bit less of this. They, nobody even asked a question where it's such any a good point. It's yeah. such a good point, because like in 2010, when you look at like wave elections and midterms, 
you had at least on the house side some scattering of opinions right i mean there yeah. were there were either holdouts or people who voted against obamacare or didn't support certain elements of stimulus or whatever but there was kind of a difference of opinion amongst a lot of democrats there's no difference here there's from from aoc to you know whoever you you consider a moderate they all support the same thing yeah, and they didn't even get anything for it. I mean, at least you could say that uh, former Senator Ben Nelson from Nebraska got the Cornhusker kickback. <laughs> yeah. He got something out of Obamacare. The rest of these people, they, they don't need anything. Just they got nothing. Happy to have it. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm with you, Chuck, Nancy, yeah, Joe, 100. percent Yeah. So uh, it, another sort of misconstruing of of your roles, I think, that has been out there in the public. The reason I'm bringing this up now is it's an incumbent state. Uh, you don't get involved in all the primaries. Right. Yes. When you get involved, it's what I assume is you've ascertained the difference here between winning and losing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, there are other groups and, you know, they have their own uh, agendas and I don't fault them for it. They're, they're looking for somebody who's uh, extremely conservative or somebody who's MAGA or somebody else. I mean, we we want to win the seat. And, and we're not looking for fine shades of uh, competitiveness. We're looking for somebody who will win the seat versus somebody who will very likely lose the seat. Right. And those painting the, with bold colors, as they say. Yes, right. Yeah. And, and because, I mean, that's not our primary goal is to get around shaping the, you know, what the conference looks like. What we want to do is make sure we win enough seats so that Republicans are in the majority. That's, it, it's a pretty reductive goal as far as we're concerned. So, and, and the reason I bring this up is Missouri. Yes, right? right. The one state where you all were involved heavily. Yes, right. Um, that, uh, quite honestly, from anybody who was looking at polls, there was a big difference between who the eventual nominee, Eric Schmidt, the current attorney general, now nominee for Senate is, and where former Governor Eric Greitens, who was leading in all of those polls prior to your involvement, uh, was in the general election, which was consistently trailing his, his Democratic counterpart. Yeah, and, and that was a tough call because you had a very crowded primary field. You had people in the larger Missouri political constellation who were all over different candidates. And there were different candidates who were all uh, decent, but they were all stealing market share off of each other and therefore paving the way for uh, Greitens to win. And, uh, you know, there were a couple polls that showed Greitens competitive in a general election posture, but you know, part of it was... You know, is there somebody who can win? But the other part of it was how many tens of millions of dollars would it take to have to litigate Missouri mm-hmm. uh, if you had Eric Greitens at, at the top of the ticket, you know, leading that effort? Money that doesn't go to these other competitive states. A- absolutely. Right. I mean, our, our general election budget for Missouri right now is zero. Yeah. And uh, not because we don't love Eric Schmidt. We, we really like him and he's going to be a great senator and he's going to get elected because he's a good candidate. He's got a good record and people in Missouri. So that's kind of the model, that. like where you've gotten involved over the last 10 years. That's the model, right? You, where you're spending a significant amount of resources up front to try to get a candidate that ultimately you don't have to spend as much to try to get elected in the fall. Yeah, hopefully so. I mean, yeah, what we spent in that primary was seven million. We probably saved 40. Yeah, so, well, you know, well, it seems like 33 a decent, decent yeah. investment. <laughs> People of Ohio, thank you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. Got to go somewhere, you know. That's right. Uh, anything else you're keeping an eye on? I know Utah Democrats try to make a, a big deal out of Utah with Mike Lee. It seems hard for me to believe that McMuffin would ever be able to compete with a senator like Mike Lee, but is it something you guys keep an eye on? 
We do keep an eye on it, and uh, we get a lot of polling on that race, including from others that are active uh, in that race. And I, I think uh, Mike Lee will be fine. Uh, McMuffin made a really big mistake in being quite clear that he was going to caucus with the Democrats, and the Democrats yeah. were for him. It just he was he's now the Democrat. Everybody gets the joke. Um, the other place that we should talk about briefly, obviously, is Pennsylvania, which uh, everybody had lar- had written off except for people who had spent any time with Dr. Oz. And mm-hmm. you have, and, and others have. And the guy is one of the most impressive uh, people ever to totally decide he's agree. gonna run for the US Senate in every possible way. I mean, this guy had an extremely serious healthcare career before he went into public media. He's very, very well known. He's one of the best communicators I've ever seen. And uh, the problem was that he came out of that primary badly limping. The um, McCormick Super PAC did a good job (laughs) beating up on him. And so he had all those negatives with Republicans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the same sort of thing. You know, people say, well, Biden's down. You know, he's, his numbers are coming back. No, no, Democrats have decided they don't think he's a, a complete and utter disgrace. They've come <laughs> around. And so, uh, you know, Oz had problems with Republican voters. We knew that would snap back once the, the general election dynamic uh, took over. But he's done much better than that. I mean, he has effectively framed this race, uh, you know, comparing his record and experience and really helping people. You know, not all politicians can say they actually help individual people, but he right. has that. And Fetterman is about the nuttiest far left offensive candidate I've ever I'm seen. I'm glad to hear you say that because I feel like I'm living in a different world. Every time I bring up his name, I'm like, I can't believe there are people that are actually casting a ballot for this. Like, you have to be so partisan yeah. in order mm-hmm. to look at the guy in gym shorts and a hoodie who can't speak whose only policy position, from what I can tell, is letting people out of prisons and raising your taxes. How is this guy, like, at all competitive? Yeah, oh, well, I, and I think it's, it is that. I think you've got a partisan base in that state that will vote for absolutely anybody if they have the D label. But, uh, but I think between now and Election Day, there's going to be a decline of enthusiasm on the Democratic side, at least with respect to uh, that Senate race. Um, you know, Fetterman is a guy who, who as you know, I mean, sponged off the rents until he was pushing 50. And uh, you know, he's kind of an unformed guy, except, as you point out, the one thing that he does care passionately about is letting criminals out. <laughs> and and I, I think so much of it is based in an ideology that says if you're a criminal, if you commit a lot of crimes— society has failed you Hmm. you're not the problem society is you're the victim if you're a criminal if you've gone out and robbed and stolen and hurt people you're the victim so we need to do everything we can to to help you it's interesting i've got family in the philadelphia area and um there's a Sunoco station that's up uh, out near Germantown in this uh, Wissahickon Park, which is, and everybody knows where this Sunoco station is. And I don't know if you saw it, but just in this last 24 hours, it was robbed by a, a, a band of thugs carrying rifles. It, it's the most stunning video, and it's all on video. They, they robbed a guy at the station, they held up the store, and, and this place is like a local landmark. It's the place you go fill up your gas. It's a little expensive because that's here in Philadelphia. But um, it, it, And there's a lot of that going on, particularly in Philadelphia and the surrounding uh, areas. Crime is a very, very big issue in Pennsylvania. You've got one guy whose solution is let them all out. You know, let, let, them, <laughs> let them have fun out there and, uh, you know, just because society failed them. Uh, it's just, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear you're as bullish as we are on Pennsylvania because I think, Look, in terms of where we got to keep them, that's obviously the one that changes everything, right? Because we Mm -hmm. go, now let's just talk about offense for a minute, right? We've got, coming into the cycle, you look at New Hampshire, you look at Georgia, 
you look at Arizona, you look at Nevada, and then somewhere along the cycle, both Colorado and Washington State sort of start getting involved because of excellent candidates. Um, where do we start here? Well, let's start with Georgia. Yeah, I think this is another state where, you know, Democrats had kind of written off the race and, uh, you know, they've done a pretty aggressive job of uh, going after Walker on uh, character. And, and, you know, that was the thing they had to do because, you know, Herschel Walker is a legend yeah. in the state. Uh, and, uh, you know, like like anybody, particularly if you're a sports figure, uh, well-known, you've got things in your background that are kind of tough. And as he has also personally uh, been very upfront about, even wrote a book about, he struggled with mental illness for a period of time, probably due to what he experienced out there in the field. And uh, they've run all that against him. And um, and I think he's shown a lot of restraint and not uh, you know, responding in kind. Uh, but uh, But at the end of the day, uh, you know, Walker is uh, an exceptionally sharp guy. People don't give him credit for that. He, he cares deeply about issues, and he knows a lot about politics and issues. Uh, that, you know, this Senate race is not the first time he's dipped his toe into politics. He's been very helpful to a lot of other candidates, not just the former president, but others. So he has been in and around all this for a long time. And the person he's running against, uh, Raphael Warnock, has been another one of these folks who just whatever Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer wanted, he was happy to do. That's yeah. all he did. He's raised all his money from left-wingers in San Francisco and New York, and he's paid them back uh, with his votes. And then in addition to that, you know, this guy came to town, and what did he do? He, he got a book deal. <laughs> well, golly, he got a half million dollar book deal, and he spent he's been spending a lot of time, even missing votes in business, to go hawk the book deal, and uh, and then he's got this tax free housing allowance that he has from his current church, and uh, so he gets tax free housing and a half million dollar book deal, and so he's living pretty good. Boy, in Washington, this has worked out for Raphael Warnock. It, it's been a it's been a, a prototypical Washington D.C. career, and he managed to do it in the first two years. I mean, it takes most people. <laughs> decades he's had an eye on this angle for a while yeah right life's been good so far to (laughs) Raphael Warnock but it's not been so good to his constituents Atlanta is either first or second in every given month for inflation rate Mm -hmm. and and he has voted down the line for every massive multi-trillion dollar inflationary spending deal didn't care didn't need anything special for it just happy to do it (laughs) the thing the thing that called so many things that the things that gall me about Raphael Warnock, but the one that encapsulates all of that to me was in his 2020 race, we ran almost exclusively with this dog, his dog, right? Oh, yes, uh, right. Is this his dog? Is it, you know, is my only friend? Is this dog? Everybody running these ads against me. Oh, my, I love this dog. And then we find out post election, it's not his dog, <laughs> right? Right. He just basically rented the dog. Canada with a rent-a-dog strategy. Yeah. Right. So, But it's a perfect encapsulation because it's all smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned this ad that he's got on the air, this peanut ad. Yes. What's the deal with this? Yeah, so it's got he's got this ad where he's standing knee-deep in peanuts, and they're pouring peanuts behind him, and he's about how he saved Georgia's peanut industry. So we looked into it a little bit, and, and here's what he did. He wrote a letter. Isn't that nice? He wrote a letter. <laughs> sternly and he worded. Said, right, he told you, right, sternly worded letter. And he said, you know, he, this is, all has to do with an, uh, a European Union rule that, uh, you know, hurts uh, Georgia peanut farmers. So he sent the letter, uh, you know, the letter with, okay, thank you very much, uh, duly noted. He also apparently had a sub- subcommittee hearing, which is great. You know, oh, sub- that's yeah, very powerful. I'm sure everybody in the country saw it. And I'm sure the EU was watching that Tremble uh, very knees. carefully. Right. And then he had language inserted in appropriations bill, and it went it went nowhere. And so, so 
to cut it out. Right, yeah, exactly, because he's got so much clout for having voted for whatever <laughs> Chuck Schumer wants. And and we checked this government funding bill that just got signed uh, last week. It doesn't appear to include Warnock's language. So basically, oh, nothing's yeah. happened. And even worse, so the EU adopted some new policy having to do not just with peanuts, but also hazelnuts. I don't know if you knew that hazelnuts are also grown in Georgia, and it slaps this, you know, 30% uh, tariff on them, you know. Hey, takes another one right, down. Yeah, takes, right, exactly. So, you know, he's standing knee-deep in peanuts, and he really should be standing knee-deep in some other substance that's also <laughs> widely used in agriculture. <laughs> 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 I love that, but you're right. He's just a he's just a phony, and it's it's beautifully produced and marketed. But he's a fraud. I mean, what he's talked about, who he is, how he's voted, it's all just you know, it's fake dogs and fake peanut ads. Oh man, it's incredible. <laughs> it really is. Um, all right, so New Hampshire. Uh, first of all, the late primary disastrous for anybody who's not an incumbent. Why Sununu ever vote vetoed that? I'll, I'll have I have no no clue. Um, basically means that our candidate comes in with zero dollars in five weeks Yeah, mm-hmm. to, to go up against somebody who's been raising money for six years. Um, what do you think? I mean, it's tough. Uh, it's tough for a number of reasons. One is that uh, you know General Bolduc is a, a grassroots candidate. That's good. But uh, you, you need to have an overall campaign. Like I said earlier, uh, voters have to have some context as to who they're voting for and not just who they're voting against. Um, you know, our polling shows that Hassan is is really weak. Uh, she is uh, disliked, whereas in some other races, uh, you know, Warnock is is not unpopular. In some other states, people just may not have a feeling about the incumbent. In, in New Hampshire, they just really don't like her, and I, I think she suffers from comparison to Senator Shaheen, who's mm-hmm. kind of an institution, really well liked, well regarded. And they look at Hassan as just kind of this hack, you know, just been around. I think feel like it's a yeah. decent surmise to yeah, be honest with right. you like <laughs> doesn't strike me as a totally effective they're, senator they're, they're kind of on to something those, yeah. those new hampshire voters right. but you know again i mean at the end of the day you know senate races are a choice to some extent they're not just you can't just say here's what's wrong with the, the other candidate you've got to make take make your own case so we're we're in there we're you know looking at it we're polling regularly you know tough tough race uh probably the toughest of the ones that we're involved in right now but uh we're we're looking at it yeah so we move out west um obviously it feels like and one of these races we can't get into specifics about because uh as the listeners of the variety program know i'm involved in nevada uh nevada and arizona which are the other two obvious sort of pickup opportunities for republicans to get the majority back yeah, I, and um, we, I won't say too much about it other than what's what's public out there. Uh, you know, it, you can't find a poll these days where Adam Laxalt, public poll, where Adam Laxalt's not leading Catherine Cortez Masto. And you know, she's another one of these people who's just never made an impression on her state. She was put up for the seat by Harry Reid, uh, you know, just kind of handpicked out of uh, nowhere, um, kind of a, an ineffective state AG and, and now kind of an ineffective uh, senator. And um, I, th- I think the environment in the in the governor's race is helping. Sisolak is unpopular. You know, all this, all mm-hmm. this has been publicly uh, litigated. And also the other thing about Nevada, as you also know, is that it really takes the brunt of tough economic times more than many other states yeah. you've got a lot of people there who who are you know they, they they live paycheck to paycheck life is tough inflation hits them hard they're making tough choices out in nevada and they're mad they're, they they and and they also understand having seen a senator like harry reed for years and years that's a guy who love him or hate him he was powerful and he got stuff done and they look over at Catherine cortez master and they say 
who? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. What is it you would say that you do here? <laughs> yeah, you, you deal right. with customers. That's great. Um, <laughs> um, and then going out beyond the map, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Arizona, uh, also a state where I think the governor's race is going to have an outsized impact on the overall environment. Uh, Kerry Lake, I think, is one of these once-in-a-generation candidates. It's a t- it's, you know, it's a tough race, very close. But uh, incredible communicator, massive presence, and also some uh, equity with voters. They've seen him, seen her do the the newscast for a couple right. of decades. They know Not who a stranger. she is. Right. Yeah, they kind of know who she is, and and uh, and she's an incredible uh, communicator. And there's a, her opponent's kind of a dud. Hobbs is sort of a dud. So I I could see that race having a big impact on the overall environment. Whether that translates to the Senate race or not, we're looking. I mean, we would love to see uh, Blake Masters in the Senate. We're not active there right now, and fortunately, a number of other people are, and they've more than made up for the the reservations that we had this fall in terms of other outside uh, activity. Well, and I read and I read quite a bit about that because you you all were in obvious negotiations with others to try to figure out how to get resources into that state because, as we've discussed, you had Ohio, North Carolina, all these other states that you that you all are are deeply playing in. And you had to figure out how to get other groups involved. It turns out that happened in September. Yeah, yeah, it's been good, and and uh, so outside uh, support is definitely there. And you have two challenges. I mean, one is uh, a little bit like Kerry Lake, uh, different kind of commodity. But uh, you know, Mark Kelly is known. He has uh, he has a profile in the state. They they know he's an astronaut. They know he's a naval aviator. They know he's got a disabled wife, and he's been tremendously loyal to her and and, and helped her. And, and Democrats came snarling out of the gate going after uh, Blake Masters, who's a sharp guy and a young guy, and he's got a bright future. And, I, and you know, our hope is that the, the larger dynamics of that governor's race, uh, the outside spending that's there on his behalf will help uh, lift him to the top. Again, we've got unfinished business still to do in states like uh, Ohio and North Carolina that are keeping us uh, uh, pretty busy. But we're, we're pretty focused on that race, and we could end up having a good day, especially if Kerry Lake ends up running away with that race. Yeah, last one I want <clears throat> to hit before I bring up Colorado and Washington State, Alaska. Uh, much was made. They, you know, they've got quirky system up there with yes. the ranked choice situation. We saw that happen just terribly for the outside. Right, where you have seventy percent of people voting Republican, but then somehow the Democrat wins the race. Right? <laughs> right yeah. So <clears throat> the Senate race has worked out a little bit differently. The incumbent Lisa Murkowski up there uh, running against Kelly Chewbacca. Uh, wh- where does this net out? Because nobody talks about it. Like, what? Maybe just cut to the chase. How's that going to end? Because I just don't. I don't have any feel for Alaska. Yeah, I think Lisa Murkowski gets reelected. Uh, it is hard to piece together uh, both a strategy and, and, a, and a very clear projection of how things are going to work out when you have ranked choice voting and it's for the first time ever. But, to be clear, we should get rid of this, right? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's a great system. I, I do. I think I think it's overly complicated and, and it's, it has this weird dynamic of giving people multiple votes instead of one vote, one right. choice. But anyway, that's for other people to figure out but uh but but it it seems pretty clear that murkowski has a strategy to win re-election she's running a a a race that uh alaskans are very familiar with and they and they like which is that alaska is a state that pays a lot of attention to what happens in washington and a lot of the economics of that state depend on that Mm -hmm. relationship and uh, Senator Murkowski, like Ted Stevens and others, and, and her own father for that matter, uh, have helped make it uh, a very fruitful relationship for, for Alaska. And Alaska is an interesting state, too. You have, you have hardcore 
traditional conservatives, and then you have libertarian-style conservatives. And and she she kind of finds a lane where she's attracting you know pro-business moderates and Democrats and uh, more libertarian-style uh, conservatives. And and it's a coalition that's pretty solid and strong. Hmm. And and you know Chewbacca, um, you know she's not without her own strength, but she's had a lot of problems. She kind of. Uh, bounced around different government jobs, a, a very serious investigation of how she expensed her time, things that she wasn't straight about. And, uh, you know, she, and, and she also talks endlessly about this sort of thing. She's sort of the, 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 the female Mandela Barnes. You know, any thought that comes into her mind, it's going to be said somewhere. And, and uh, all those quotes are out there and are currently being used. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> Let me turn <clears throat> quickly to Washington State. Tiffany Smile. Smiley. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had her on the program. Delightful. Yes. It's still Washington State. Yeah. Yeah. I, Tiffany Smiley and Joe O'Day are our two best Senate candidates running in any state. Yeah, I've heard and, a lot of people say and that. And Smiley is, she. you know, I, I hope she wins this race. If not, she should give seminars on how to be a perfect candidate. I mean, she, first of all, she is competitive with the Democrat incumbent opponent in fundraising. That's not happening anywhere else in the country. She's just an incredible uh, fundraiser, great work ethic. She talks about the issues that voters care about. That that seems to elude some politicians. Yeah. You just talk about the issues that voters care about, and that's a good place to start. You've got tremendous message discipline. She, in addition to t- talking about what she should talk about, she doesn't talk about things that are problematic. And as you've experienced, she's, she's just a tremendously compelling person with an unbelievable personal story yeah. and you know it and she probably recounted it on your show but so she's got so much that she brings uh to the case um you know we're hoping for a wave that that changes the fundamental dynamics of that state but this is one of those states where you know you could have sky high inflation and rampant crime and tent cities outside your home and you go into the election voting booth and you say uh, abortion i'm gonna vote democrat i mean that's oh, just yeah. sort of this dynamic in that state you know it just kind of proves that liberals will vote against their own quality of life and so anyway we'll see I mean, she's running a great race. She's got a compelling message. You know, Patty Murray looks like she's been around a long time. <laughs> you know, that can be an asset sometimes. But I, you know, I, I would bet if you asked your average, you know, Washington stater, what has she done for you lately? I think they'd say, was she the person in tennis shoes? And that'd be about it. You know, I, I just don't think she's done a lot. So we're hopeful there. And um, similarly, uh, Colorado probably less of a you know dyed in the wool blue Democrat state. It's not the same state that elected Cory Gardner in 2014, though. I mean, it's become more liberal. You have a lot of, again, proving that liberals are dumb. You get a lot of California <laughs> liberals move to Colorado because they can't stand the high tax and they vote for Democrats. You know, and they, yeah. well, <laughs> I think there should be citizenship exams for states. When you move from places like California, you should have to declare how you're going to vote on issues. I blame some of it on the bong loads, too. I feel like they've gotten a little heavy on, <laughs> a little heavy on some of that. Right. It's true. If you, you know, it, it just kind of goes to show, you know, that's like the opium wars, you know, you keep people deeply, you know, uh, in, in psychedelics and, and, and bongs, you know, you, they're going to vote the way, however you want, you know, uh, but, uh, but Joe O'Day is another one of these one of a kind candidates. Uh, you know, he's got an incredible personal story adopted by a police officer, construction worker, you know, union card holding, uh, you know, underdog kind of guy. Uh, and he comes across that way. He's a, he's a rough guy, and, but, but he's got a great story and a great family and a great heart. And uh, you know, Michael Bennett is none of those things. He's an effete Eastern University totally. educated guy who comes across that way. He just, even in his ad where he's out there hiking, it looks like <laughs> 
it just looks like somebody who kind of wandered off some college campus and got really lost. You know, he's, looking for, he's got his GPS there, you know, where's the nearest Starbucks for some emergency scones, you know. <laughs> I love that. That's exactly. It's just the softest of soft. Yes, right, right. So, you know, I, I, again, Colorado probably has more of a libertarian uh, ring to it, but it's a tough state. Yeah. Um, tough state, and Democrats are clearly concerned about it. They spent a fortune uh, in the primaries, you know, to brand Joe Day as a pro-choice moderate, and now they're saying, "Oh no, forget about all those ads. He's really, you know, he wants to lock up women, and he's a hardcore MAGA uh, liberal, uh, yeah. Republican." I mean, it just it kind of doesn't work. And what do you make of that? Dem- that's a new thing for Democrats, right? I mean, they're playing in all these primaries, yeah, Republican mm-hmm. primaries, basically to trying to prop up who they believe is the least electable. Yeah, yeah. Right? They've gotten some flack on their own side for it. Uh, I I do think uh, it's something that we ought to talk about is, uh, you know, particularly when Democrats are actively promoting Republicans who hold the kinds of views that they say are are anathema and have no place in the political dialogue. That's where I think you got to draw the line. I mean, it's one thing to fool around with other sides' primaries and maybe you get lucky. I I think it's of of limited use. But if you're promoting a Republican candidate and they have views that you say are beyond the pale politically, but you're promoting them, I think it just goes to show that they really don't believe any of that at all it's that is just the modern purely bottom line reductive politics they, they don't you know they, they have no you know they can talk about j6 all they want forget about it you know because you're promoting people who are on the wrong side of that according to your perspective uh, it's entirely true yeah right mm-hmm. the modern left which is just a kind of a corporate vacant variety of views yeah yeah as they say you know if liberals didn't have double standards they'd have no standards at all. <laughs> <laughs> so we toured the whole map let me just ask you for the upshot you think we got a path here i do i do because i think um as i look at uh, wisconsin pennsylvania ohio north carolina florida we mentioned uh briefly uh i, I think there's a very credible pathway to hold all of that real estate and then if we do we just need one and I think at the very least, you'd have to say that Nevada's looking better and better and better. I think Georgia is looking better. I'm just starting to see people have real doubts about Warnock's image at a time when uh, Herschel Walker is on the air, uh, reintroducing yeah. himself as the, the guy that people really like and respect. And, uh, you know, and then there's some potential in places like New Hampshire and uh colorado maybe arizona depending on how that governor's race goes and and uh, you know we still hold out hope that tiffany smiley because she's a great candidate and ultimately people are going to want somebody they respect and like and she's that kind of person so i think there are any number of potential pathways to at least pick up the net one and uh hopefully we'll feel a little bit better even than that on election day so we've done a lot of these cycles yes we have you've done a lot of them in particular uh rank this one in terms of its difficulty uh for slf and the larger view i mean i feel like almost every cycle has its own challenges and its own trouble you learn a little something from it and you try to apply it to the next cycle how tough is this one uh th- this one is the, the the hardest i think um you know 14 uh which is when we all started kind of pulling together on this project even though before that american crossroads had been involved um 
The wind was at our backs, and we had just one great candidate after another. I mean, these people have all gone on to be elected. Uh, many, most of them are still there, and they're all making a big difference. I mean, it was just a joy to see them yeah. uh, run. Uh, 16, you had the, the the presidential overhang, but that ended up being uh, a boost at the end of the day. It, it certainly contributed to Senator Ron Johnson's yeah. uh, re-election success. Uh, 18, challenging that cycle, uh, 20 even more so, but uh, we were somewhat able to control our destiny. Mm-hmm. The, the challenge this cycle is a lot of people ended up getting nominated in races where they were all su- sort of surprises. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of them affected by uh, the president's endorsements. And in many cases, you know, we were on the same side. I mean, we were happy with Ted Budd, very happy, obviously, with Adam Laxalt. But you had this kind of hands-off approach to primaries. Uh, and then you had uh, a lot of groups influencing primary results, sometimes to, to good and sometimes to ill effect. But it just feels like that we're, we're being handed a lot more than we have been in previous cycles and just trying to make the best with what we've got. Now, some of this has been great. I mean, some first-time candidates like Dr. Oz have grabbed it and are running one of the best races in the country. I mean, Joe Day and and, uh, Tiffany Smiley, first-time candidates, just knocking it out of the park. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in some cases, we're having to do some remedial work, and that's okay, you know, but it it just makes it tougher uh, with that outside environment creating a whole lot of uncertainty. Yeah, well said, well said. Well, I think we'll probably schedule a post-election discussion talk about lessons learned and what we need to do to recapture majorities and hopefully we'll have majorities but recapture the presidency in 2024 Stephen, i can't thank you enough for coming on thank you for what you're doing and what you have done over the last 10 plus years for the party you're never going to get enough credit for it in my view so uh thanks again well thank you i uh, i really appreciate ruthless being here too and being on the show uh you guys are creating the intellectual capital for the uh, conservative political uh, junkie movement uh, and doing it <laughs> winsomely and hilariously. So I thank you for everything you're doing. Great to be on the show. Yeah, thanks again. So that's a trip around the map. Look, um, I think he feels pretty good. He certainly feels better than the analysis was trying to, to portray here, even as late as last week, yeah. about where these races stand. It seems to me like the upshot on that is... He seems super focused on Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Seems super focused on Georgia. He seems super focused on Nevada. Um, he's not given up on on Arizona and New Hampshire. And then it feels really good about all the holds, right? North Carolina. You're talking about Ohio, Wisconsin, and, you know, Missouri. Um, so you know, look if that nets out, uh, it's a majority. So. And, and like I've said, like the polling, especially now that you're seeing the fresh polling out there. You know, the narrative over the past summer of, of the media trying to get Republicans to panic has has shown that it was all just a farce. It was all just an illusion. Voters are now tuned in. It's the fall. You know, it's getting cold. Now Now families, you know, uh, their kids are at school. They're focusing on the kitchen counter issues, and, and, and they're going to have to vote Republican. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're making a good case, and God bless them for it, because I don't know where we'd be without SLF. Um, all right, so here here's – I got to get to this. I'm so glad that this was highlighted in our sheet because I, I sort of breezed through it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw the headline and I sort of breezed through it. But this is an amazing thing that McDaniel yeah. rightly points out yep. should and and would if it was any other 
uh, takeaway than it is be on the headline of every single newspaper in America. I love that he headlined it, enraged that I haven't seen this covered anywhere. Yeah, so so it hasn't been covered, and we're fa- in fact bringing it straight from the census. This Correct. is this is not from a newspaper. This is from the census. If you look back. And they just, you know, they finished their their counts of everybody in the United States. And the conclusions that they've come to now is they've under undercounted a few states and overcounted a few states. Was you it got, random or is it is You it guys want to like, wager a guess as to which ones they've over and undercounted? <laughs> so undercounted, Arkansas, mm, okay. Florida, oh, interesting. Illinois, Mississippi, Tennessee, in Texas, yeah. So you got a bunch of big red huh, states. So they're trying there. to keep like federal funds from from red states. All right. Okay. Interesting. So so what do they overcount? Delaware. Mm. Uh, mm. I, I wonder why that's like number mm. one on the list. Interesting. Hawaii, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New York, Rhode Island, and Utah. The only red state on here is Ohio, and it's by a smidgen. It's one percent. One one percent overcount. Here's why this matters, right? Because you you, know, you think about it in terms of like federal funding allocations and stuff, and you're like, I, around the margin, they're going to waste the money anyway. What it, what actually matters is because it's the key to redistricting. Yep. Right. So you either get larger congressional representation or smaller congressional representation mm-hmm. based upon what the census finds. How odd. That all of the states that they overcount people are bright blue bastions of activity. Yeah, they're like, well, so we want, we want so to take strange. away five percent of the population from Arkansas, five percent of the population from Tennessee, uh, and and Delaware. They're like, we want to add five percent population. Hawaii, six percent. Massachusetts, two and a half percent. Like, the this is basically nothing less than them trying to, as you described rejigger redistricting to try and make sure that blue states get more representation in congress and red states get less what is so fascinating about this and here's just one little excerpt here the census made its largest overcount percentage error in joe president joe biden's tiny home state of delaware which is overcounted by four five point four percent but rhode island and minnesota were also overcounted by five percent and three point eight percent respectively which allowed them to keep a congressional seat uh, that they are not entitled to. There you go. Right? Okay. All right. So now it's beginning to make a lot more sense. Here's where this thing really stuck in my craw, fellas, mm-hmm. is that like mistakes are made. But if you recall the debate going into the counters actually going out across the country, what Democrats argued is that they should be able to count illegal immigrants in the census. Mm-hmm. And their argument was, well, there are people that are living there. They're going to need... You know, resources, public services, public services, yeah. no matter what. So people are people. We count them accordingly. Except if you go back to the founding of our fucking country. Yeah. All of this is for the United States taxpayer. Yep. It's all for the people that live in this place. This is the reason they pay taxes. There's something called citizens. There's right. Something called citizens. We're a country. At some level, there's a benefit to being American, right? When it comes to the services provided by your country. It's like if you're a citizen of a country and you pay taxes, you get representation. It's a very simple formula that they've just tried to muddle. And I, I just couldn't believe there was an argument to be made by this. But of course, what they wanted to do was overcount places in like California, provide an extra congressional seat and more funding to 
blue states. It says here Florida and Texas were both basically cheated out of additional congressional districts hmm, as right. a result of this. Right. Amazing. Right. So, I mean, look, this is a scandal in my opinion. It really is. This is a big deal. I can't believe nobody has. Maybe somebody's got an explanation. Well, there's a reason that the mainstream media doesn't want people to know, hey, by the way, the census cheated you out of representation if you're in a red state and gave them all to blue states. They're not going to say that. They're not going to tell the people what happened. Well... Who do you think? Who do you think works at the census? Do you think it's mostly Republicans or? Mostly Republicans? <laughs> <laughs> if I had to guess, it's a hardcore conservative group. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we all know the answer to that. But the guy who's got to deal with this more than any human on the planet is Dan Constant, the president of CLF, who has to deal with all of these new redistricted seats and trying to get a Republican majority in the House of Representatives. I want to welcome to the program somebody you've heard here before, who I think gave us basically like spot-on analysis in uh, 2020 when he was in here doing uh, the same thing he's doing here today. He's the president, the CEO, the the head honcho of the Congressional Leadership Fund, Dan Constant. Welcome to the program. An honor and a pleasure to be back. Listen, man, uh, so let me start with where we were. Right. You were basically the only one who was telling us consistently that the House was going to be pretty close in 2020 and that you had sort of mapped out this gain that, you know, may not get to the majority, but it's going to way outsize expectations. That ends up happening. Not surprisingly, everybody begs you to stay. Uh, so now you got a, a all Democratic government, which typically provides a little bit better environment to uh, the party out of power and you've got basically a split house to work from um, before we get into the specifics of anything how you feeling I feel great uh, I, I believe we're 36 37 days out we're about five weeks to go and we have the average target incumbent Democrat below 46 on the ballot wow. <laughs> gotta like that so we we feel really good and look last cycle, Last cycle was very difficult for the first month, month and a half to move numbers. In a tough political environment, it's just, it's a slog, it's harder. Obviously, as you mentioned, we had a much better than expected election night. We knew we had great opportunities. A lot of those came to fruition. We flipped 15 seats. Every single person that wins was a Republican minority, Republican woman, Republican veteran. Mm -hmm. That has continued on. But Today, I, I feel great looking at where our spending has been the last month. We are moving a substantial amount of numbers on target Democrats, and it's moving quicker than it did in 2020, wow. certainly a lot quicker than it did in 2018 when the wind was really in our face. Well, let me, let me catch a couple of top-line numbers here, because it, it looks like you've committed $190 million to NIE spending. So far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> it's just an absurd number. Uh, I love it. I love it. raised 220 to date, 295 between CLF and American Action Network. I mean, that's some pretty good stats there, pal. So last cycle, we raised $167 million just into CLF. We were the largest house super PAC ever. And as you note, I mean, we're at 220 now. We are on the verge of breaking 300 overall. <laughs> we think there, I mean, we have a whole month to go. We think there is a lot of money still to be raised. There's important races to double down in and to expand further in. And, and also... Some of this is, you know, we're we're not in a vacuum. 
how are we doing compared to our opponents? And the Pelosi-aligned Super PAC House Majority PAC, as of their last filing, had raised $90 million for the cycle. So we're at 220 and they're at 90 um, and hey, look, Sean Patrick Maloney has said it quite a few times that his he seems his like a real all star. By the way, that guy's got it all put together, right? Well, holy his, his committee is not doing great, and I'll tell you, he is in a lot more jeopardy than I believe the collective wisdom would would want you to believe. Um, but but they're just Maloney has said time and again that his big concern is is our spending and and where we go and I I feel like we have a ability to just be uh, really decisive. Late. Yeah. Yeah. So what what are your let's talk about your favorites right now, right? Because we've got basically everybody who does the analysis on house races they they sort of paint with the broad brush, right? And they do the environment stuff, they do the targeted stuff. But like you guys dig in deep on each one of these races. What what are you looking at right now? Like what are your favorites? Yeah, so CLF today is spending in 50 races. Uh only 11 incumbents, so the vast majority vast vast majority is on offense. I think 90 over 90% of our spending is in Biden one seats. Oh, that's great. So we news. are moving the map as far as we can. Uh it's hard to pick uh, you know, amongst so many good candidates. But I will say this, the where we started, to me, the fundamental difference of why we are here is not just environment, it's that we prioritized recruitment again, and we work to get these candidates through primaries, and it has allowed us to, to make our own luck. And yeah. I think Leader McCarthy deserves a tremendous amount of credit um, this was a model that worked last cycle. We've doubled down. We've gotten, frankly, I think, a, a good bit more aggressive in the recruitment and in the primary engagement this cycle. Um, some of those candidates. Look, Jen Kiggins in Virginia. I, I, we don't want uh, her to meet Mitch McConnell anytime soon because he's going <laughs> to try to get her to run for the Senate. <laughs> yeah, his best friend is, is Dan Constant. He goes and looks through his notebook. It's like stealing Saban's notebook, hmm. right? It's like, uh, oh, what, what do we have here? <laughs> what, what, what are you looking at, Dan? We're glad to be your recruitment department. <laughs> um, so, Jen, going up against a tough incumbent in Elaine Luria, but this is a traditional swing seat. We have had Jen leading multiple surveys we feel great about where we are luria's image has inverted and and she a couple weeks ago she went out in a a speech and she said oh i'm so happy aren't we so happy for what uh uh that that biden and kamala harris got elected they've done so many great things and this is a (laughs) seemingly innocuous clip but but this has now become the center point of our whole advertising in a district like this we say you know, yeah, you're with you're with them 100. percent How great are things? Yeah, it's, it's really? not it's not a bad thing to say if things are going okay, yeah. right? But the backdrop for all of this is eight and a half percent on or uh, inflation. You've got horrible economic recession. We're in a recession, right? We're in a recession, and and like they, these guys are are passing inflation reduction acts that result in everything getting worse. Yeah, a lot of tax hikes in there. <laughs> right. um, so Je- Jen Kingins in Virginia, uh, Navy fighter, Navy helicopter pilot. Her husband's a Navy fighter pilot. She retired to become a geriatric nurse. She wins a seat, a state senate seat that Biden won. Juan Siscomani in Arizona. I don't know if you all know Juan yet. If not, you should. Yeah. So Juan, Juan's father, emigrates from Mexico. 
when he was six. He started driving a city bus in Tucson. He still drives a city bus in Tucson. Hmm. Um, Juan's got beautiful family, six kids. He worked for Doug Ducey. He ran Southern Arizona for Ducey. We wanted him to run for ages. This is um, this was Martha McSally's district, then Ann Kirkpatrick's. It's an open seat, swing seat. He gets in. We engaged in uh, extraordinary ways in the primary. Uh, over 1.2 million spent. He should not have won that primary. He won it by 30 plus points. Amazing. Uh, there were multiple candidates that would have been poison pills that that we were able to. Yeah, you got to try of. to work through that stuff. Indeed, um, and Juan. I mean, Juan's going to win in, uh, I think, decisive fashion. Incredible. Uh, I believe Jennifer Ruth Green. I'm sure uh, and you've you've heard of her if you haven't yeah, had her yeah. on the show. Yeah, yet. we did. We did. You did. Yeah. There you are. Um, you know, th- you, you'll find that most of your all stars we've decided to have a little time with. Uh, I, I did notice that. You, I just wasn't sure. <laughs> in in yeah. fairness, what you said about recruitment and and everything McCarthy has done and you guys have supported has been incredible. I mean, we're talking about really top-notch folks here. I mean, across the board, even in places where it's a reach, you've got candidates that are really top shelf, which, you know, you don't get that by accident. You got to recruit them. You got to support them. You got to make sure these people win primaries. Seems like you've done an incredible job at that. Well, we've taken the view that if you leave these things to chance, it does not go well, and you need to yes. go make your own luck. Maximum <laughs> politics right there, absolutely. Uh, but Jennifer Ruth is, I think, a, a great example of, of an opportunity in that, I mean, this is a district Democrats have held for 95 years. Right. I, like, this isn't some easy exercise. This is not a seat that we ever looked at before. She's running against a totally anonymous member of Congress. His name's Frank Mervan. Yeah. If you was, Google him, huh? uh, yes, a, a question mark <laughs> pops up on Google uh, on the image section. Never heard of him. Uh, he is not that popular. Um, we have now inverted him on his image. And mm. this is... The, this is northern indiana so it's the chicago exurbs so it's chicago broadcast it, it's an expensive bet for us but we feel like we're moving in the right direction and we have a, a really good shot and you know that only happens with a partner a candidate like yeah. jennifer ruth i saw this morning she announced she had raised 1.3 million dollars this quarter wow. she had a quarter last year where she raised less than fifty thousand dollars wow so that's Where a trajectory. she has come as a candidate is, is unbelievable. That's incredible. Well, I mean, look, and you look at some of these Democratic incumbents. I mean, talk about pathetic, right? I mean, Cindy Axney. So this is great. I mean, she, she, I think she has largely been written off by the National Party. Um, you love to see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's tough. to see it. But your guy, so, your guy in that district, Zach Nutt's a great candidate. He's one of the. I mean, we had him on the yeah, show. He's yeah, he's fantastic. He, fabulous. He's going to be a great member of Congress, future star. Uh, in the latest, I think, sign that that they're really ready to to get uh, that that she's even given up. She um, she she proxy votes, I think, quite a bit. But this time, she proxy voted so she could go on vacation in France. Oh. <laughs> And she gave her vote over on the Inflation Reduction Act. Unbelievable. So, uh, yeah, she, of all things. She raised her taxes from, from France. And she was just <laughs> hanging out in Paris? Yeah. Her son posted it to Instagram, so she got <laughs> caught. 
Uh, th- this Thanks, may or may not be in an ad that goes up uh, tomorrow <laughs> or Wednesday. <laughs> I love it. All right, so talk to me about Alyssa Slotkin. Yeah, so uh, Alyssa Slotkin is a uh, one of these members that the DC press corps would have you believe is is as you know tough to beat as possible. Uh, great member because she does national TV hits and national media. Right, that um, seems to be their only bellwether for that kind of thing. Right. So it turns out. Um, her voters, or the voters in her district, do not uh, see it that way. <laughs> They're her not image, on MSNBC all day? They are n- shocking to hear <laughs> the people of, <laughs> of Lansing away. and the Detroit suburbs are not. <laughs> so she, we already had her inverted on her image. We, um, NRCC and CLF, are both spending heavily there. We've been focusing on her as a partisan that, you know, she presents this fantasy in advertising and and the reality is she's she's a total hack and then it comes out uh, i think a week or two ago that she has been renting an apartment from a lobbyist in lansing so she could have a residence Mm. to vote from um the the lobbyist big shock is a donor to her um and he uh was able to procure uh, government uh, government money that, that she helped work on. Oh, the wow. old revolving door. Yeah, so. <laughs> How about that? I bet she's got a decent rate on that sucker, too, right? I Yeah, I, I, I'm sure it was um, as low as market could go. <laughs> Incredible. So one one last one, because yep. Gabe Vasquez. Oh, oh, he's a peach. Um, okay, so this is this is good. So Yvette Harrell, uh, incumbent that that ousted a, a very uh, difficult-to-beat Democrat last cycle in Sochi Torres Small. Democrats thought, and they said at the time, they were really brazen about it. They said, we're just going to redistrict the seat. Um, that, Like the head of the the Demo- of the commission, or I think it was a, uh, maybe the head of the um, state senate caucus or something. So they, and they do, um, they redistrict it, and now it's a Biden six. It went from a Trump six to a Biden six. So we are in, we are spending. It's a big race. Gabe Vasquez, we have been attacking him for being anti-cop, pro-defund the police. He's out there in his advertising saying, oh, no, Gabe stands with law enforcement. Look at this. I'm a total law enforcement guy. It comes out in the last week or two <laughs> that uh, he did an interview, a TV interview, where he refused to give his name and he, he put a gator up over <laughs> this, his nose. We talked to, we talked about this on the show. I know, I yeah. just had to talk about it's it. It's incredible. And he says, oh, no, we, we totally need to deconstruct and defund. It's, it's far <laughs> beyond just defunding. The whole police system has to go. So it turns out he's a complete and utter fraud. Um, and that- When you first get that little oppo across the old desk, are you like, you've got to be kidding me with this? <laughs> Well, I would say we we changed our uh, script uh, within yeah. a day, <laughs> so that what a gift, right? Yeah, that's going up this week as well. Um, I yeah, it is a gift. They they don't have good candidates. It turns out. Yeah, and in fairness to them, well, why would they be able to get good candidates this cycle? I mean, a very who wants difficult. to run as a Democrat? I, I, I can't I can't imagine it. I mean, you have to be such a partisan in this environment to yeah. sit back and look at what's happening and be like, you know what? Democrats, I think, have a real good handle on governing right now. This feels great, <laughs> right? The, sunny, it's sunny uh, on the hill. But it's not, I mean, you guys, 
have been what you do well is prosecute this case from beginning to end. I mean, you guys have basically been on offense since day one here. Yeah, I I think one of the big one of the big successes this cycle has been generating retirements. And that has that that has meaningfully changed our chances in the House. Yeah, um, we are going to beat a lot of incumbent Democrats. There's a lot of terrible incumbents. There are a lot of decent incumbents that are going to lose as well. But so many of our opportunities this cycle are open seats that Biden won by single digits, even low double digits, and and it's largely that happens when people see the writing on the wall. Right. And, and they're like, this is going to be tough in this environment to hold this seat. Right. And you made it tougher on them right away. Oh, yeah. I, I think, look, we were out there pretty early on beating the drum, running early advertising, a lot of communications efforts. Um, Leader McCarthy, uh, I think, wasn't so subtle <laughs> when he spoke, um, you know, at, at various press conferences through last year that, um might want to think about finding something else to do if you're a target Democrat, and they did uh, over, I believe it's 33 retirements, which is the most since 1992. And you say, well, why? What was in 1992? It wasn't, you know, a wave. It wasn't 94, and that was the year that they changed the rules. It was the- where yes, <laughs> yeah. members of Congress used to be able to take their campaign accounts and just take them for their own retirement, and they they changed the rules on that. So then you had. The largest amount of retirements. Then. It was the old Dan Rostenkowski deal, right? Yes. Where like a whole bunch of fraud in the Democratic side, and they decided to switch some rules. You couldn't take, couldn't freewheeling spend your money on yourself. What a country, basically. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, forget about it. I'm out of here." <laughs> <laughs> and they've done more, more retirements this cycle than that. We're, 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 yeah, we're, uh, we're setting records with that. Our Democrats are setting records. Oh there. man, that's incredible. So. so- We've obviously talked about the the great things of this cycle, um, but it, it's a different cycle than maybe some of the other, um, you know, what we would consider like a wave year, like a 2010, where you're competing in what would have been like Trump plus five districts or Trump plus seven districts yeah. that are, you know, represented by a Democrat. Like this cycle, you are playing in Biden plus sevens and Biden plus eights. Can you talk a little bit about how different the map is in 2022 than it has been in previous cycles? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, big difference between this cycle and 2010. In 2010, they were in the 170s. This is um, we are at 211. Yeah. Uh, we'll be at 212 after um, uh, the special election. We made up a significant amount of those Wins last cycle, and I don't even call them easy wins because, to be honest, they they weren't. Um, although beating Max Rose was a lot of fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember you highlighting him yeah. for special treatment last time. <laughs> I, I can't believe he came back. And they first he tried to run for mayor. I'm just a disaster for him. Three time loser in, in three years. It's going to be special. Uh, all right, enough about Max Rose. So we made up a lot of the gains last cycle. So we're already at in the two teens, low two teens. All we have to do is get to 218. So there's not a lot of easy room to go. Okay, and then redistricting. The biggest effect of redistricting, and I believe it was basically net-net. We might have uh, benefited a seat or two here and there, 
but the the main effect of redistricting is that there's a lot less swing seats. Yeah. There's 40% less swing seats. So there's not a lot of districts that Trump won and Biden won that we can play in. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only 16 seats that Trump won that a, a Democrat sits in or that are new districts. Mm-hmm. And then there's a ton of new seats that Biden won by a huge margin. It's just sort of the nature of, of how redistricting works. So if we go out and if we won every seat that Trump won, we would end up in a 209-seat minority. Oh, see, nobody knows that. Okay, so we got to go a, a good bit deeper than that. And that's where over 90% of our spending is in Biden won territory. Uh, a lot of it is is fairly deep into Biden won territory, double digit, um, some seats, a lot in those high single digit seats. If we go, if if we're successful, and I think it's it's difficult to do this, but if we were successful in winning every single seat that Biden won by seven or less, we would get to a majority of, of 233. Well, see, that's an amazing stat. That's an amazing, because seven, plus seven, that's a reach, right? I mean, plus seven feels like you got to have a good day and you got to have good candidates. And we may very well have a good day. I know you've got good candidates, but still, that's, I mean. It's hard to run the table yeah. on that. Um, and that's a that's a 22-seat net gain. Well, and then you're also dealing with the issue that redistricting means, you know, there's a percentage in all of these districts of voters who they're represented by a new member of Congress. Yeah. Right? So, like, especially when you're dealing with these incumbent Democrats, it's like, you've got to do your work reminding them, oh, hey, this stuff you hate from the Biden administration, this person's responsible for it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the yes, you deal with that issue of like there being a big delta between Biden's disapproval and how they view their Democrat in Congress, because they may not even know that that's their member. Right. You're totally onto something. There is a huge knowledge gap of voters to who the candidate is or who their member is in redistricting cycles. Right. We're seeing this in a lot of open seats. Good thing you have $200 million. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need more. It's <laughs> a lot of communication that has to be done here. Yeah. This person that's terrible, they are, in fact, doing it to you. They are your representative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so there's a significant amount of that. And same with the open seats, that we're bloodying up uh, a lot of these um, Democrats in open seat, the, the Democratic challengers. But there is some lag in that people just... They hear, you know, they see the ads. They don't know that it's the candidate there. And I think as we get into October, that will the the knowledge will will hopefully increase quite a bit, and they will know that they do not like that person. See, I, I just think this is such an important part of this conversation, yeah. right? Because when, when we are talking about red waves, everybody goes back and looks at the 2010s or whatever, and they just extrapolate numbers out of thin air. Yeah. But if you look at where the house is situated now and the stats that you gave us about winning, you know, every Trump won district not even having a majority and if you win everything up to 7 points in Biden you're still only at a 22 seat pickup. Like a 22 seat with that context is an absolutely massive red wave. Massive massive. Yeah. <laughs> massive red wave, right? Being in the 230s is a red wave. Yeah, totally. No, I, no question about it. And that's where we're totally focused on how do you win these seats in the 220s? How do you pick off a couple, enough seats in the 230s? Are there some seats that really should be in the 240s that we can pick off late? Catch somebody sleeping. Yeah. And that, I mean, I'll tell you a great example. This isn't so much sleeping anymore, but but 
one of our best opportunities now is Texas 34 with Myra Flores. Mm. Yeah. And look, seal up. We were proud. We went into that primary. We spent, we had her at 35% a month out. We saw a narrow path to getting her to 50. She gets to 50. She has become an incredible member. Totally. But I mean, her opponent is just melting down. <laughs> and and she has become, I mean, you go look at the polling. We've had two successive surveys with us leading. The Democrat is seen on is unpopular, and she's seen as a popular incumbent. Yeah. Uh, so well, and she should be because she's incredible, right? And she's fabulous. told this broader story, not only about your recruitment, the work that you guys have done within the Hispanic community, but the story that, that he's extrapolated out nationwide as a result, right? She's basically become sort of the walking, talking embodiment of what we're seeing with the Hispanic community nationwide shifting away from the Democratic Party. Yeah, Myra's a movement now. Totally. She's more than a member. She really it's is. incredible. It, it really is. No, I mean, I can't wait to, for you guys to have her there again so we can take her all different places and have her talk to people because, honestly, if she got in front of every Hispanic community across this country... I think the enormous difference that she would make because she's right. so persuasive and so good. Yeah, she is. Now, you know, what, what that's because of the map, it's led us and, and somewhat the opportunities, great candidates, et cetera. It's led us to invest in all sorts of seats, double digit Biden seats. I mean, this this Texas 34, which we're we feel really good about still Biden won the seat by over 15 points. Yeah, right. Um, so that's a district that in a normal cycle, you talk about that the final two weeks of the election. Completely. Yeah. Alan Fung in Rhode Island, a seat Biden won by 14. These are things that, that come up, you know, in the final 10 days. Can you believe it? And and where we are, we've been spending on both since the beginning of September, and we feel like we have real shots. Oh, man. So ballpark this out for me. We have all had to deal with Democrats saying, no red wave, red wave's canceled. It's all an abortion and the economy mm. doesn't matter anymore. And obviously the month of September changed a lot of that, right? As you enter October, final stretch run, you're feeling good. I feel really good. We are moving numbers on Democrat incumbents. Uh, we were moving them with some ease, some of that, I think, is environment. Some of that is effective message, effective advertising. We've got the average incumbent Democrat, I believe, sitting as a, basically a sitting duck below 46. We, we have eight below 45. <laughs> so if so you we, are an incumbent, just for our listeners' sake, and you are below 45 in October, and you're the incumbent member of Congress with an environment cutting against you. an environment cutting against you and there's unified party control in Washington and you're that party <laughs> that's a tough deal it's a tough policy that's a tough deal because generally those undecided voters aren't really open to you they've already rendered a judgment yeah now maybe they're not going to tell a pollster yet that they're definitely going to pull the lever for a Republican maybe they stay home but the likelihood that they're going to turn out for you not so great not so great this the, the this is the the tough fact for Democrats. They want you to believe that this is a choice. They they are in charge of everything. <laughs> Things are not going well. This, this right. is a referendum. Things I, are not going well. It, it is extremely difficult to make a midterm anything but a referendum. Uh, and the, I mean, unfortunately, the economy is is. 
clearly heading south. I mean, you said it, we're in a recession now, a huge amount of retirement savings wiped out. They're patting themselves on the back for the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. That's a tax hike yeah. on people making as little as 10 grand a year. Yeah, And that's where, uh, you know, certainly no voter knew that at the time, but that has been a huge piece of our messaging in district after district, the, the billion dollar tax hike on people making 50 grand or less multiple billion 75 grand or less this is not just about rich people yeah um well look we've said it from the very beginning historically it should be a good cycle it never is unless there are people out there that are shoveling away doing the hard work of trying to make it happen nobody does that better than dan constant and his team over at clf thank you for what you're doing thanks for coming in here and sharing it i hope post-election we can have a little fun uh, we can talk some smack about, share some war stories, and uh, maybe a cocktail or two. That sounds great. This was a blast, and I appreciate you all for what you were doing with Ruthless. It is unbelievable. Uh, and thank you for having so many fantastic Republican candidates in the House side. Thanks, Dan. Really appreciate it. That guy just does such a good job. He's just so good at what he does. Yeah, and he was yeah. looking sharp when he came in here. I, you know, I'm not surprised he's raised $200 million. Yeah, he's kind of got that look. He's got a look. He's I, dapper. Yeah. And I got a feeling, I mean, uh, you know, I don't want to jinx it, but, you know, I have a great feeling folks have been putting in the work. The volunteer army that we have out there for our House candidates has been amazing. I got a feeling we're going to rob the scoreboard, man. He's doing a great job. Dapper, yeah. Dapper Dan Constance. Dapper, Dapper, Dan. Calm down. Dapper Dan. Dapper Dan. He's doing the good work. Um, well, I wasn't surprised to see this headline, but this is from one of McDaniel's favorites, Study Finds. No. You love yeah. Study Finds. Love Study Finds. He has like a Google alert for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> study Finds. Surprise, surprise. People are more likely to embrace conservative values after they have kids. Yeah. No, I mean, like, look, I. What do you think about Nothing that? has made me more based than <laughs> seeing my child be born into this world. Totally, right? You know, like, there's something and that happens. All of a sudden, the party's over and you're responsible for making sure a human is functional. <laughs> right. It's like, well, I guess I have to worry about family values. But, like, also, like, like at a, like a lofty level, like, you think about this long. There's also just, like, some reptilian part of your brain that kicks in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you the know? reptile brain is like, must save the world. Yes. My children are precious. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Well, I mean, it, you, you begin to think a lot about things like schools uh-huh. and like, you know, they're onboarding into taking care of themselves and their own families and what's surrounding them and polluting what could be, you know, a great life. And all of a sudden that has a tendency of making you super based. Yeah. No question about it. That's yeah, the thing is like anytime one of my friends has their first kid, like the following day, they're like ultra right wing. <laughs> Like, my God, we have to save the country. <laughs> but yet another reason why if you, like, you know, decode what Democrats are doing and devaluing families yeah. and devaluing child childbirth and devaluing sort of a nuclear existence, well, there's, well I mean, that's you know, the they're not like, dumb. You, this is what they're trying to prevent. You see all the, like, uh, the, the teachers unions and stuff and, and the way that, like, numerous times they've been on video, like, Libs of TikTok's done an amazing job where they're like, we consider... The, the our students our kids and that's right. why they're like we don't want them to talk about what we discuss they want to decouple parents, parents from kids. children yeah i mean it's Shocking. it's sick stuff but that's the way that they <laughs> think and i mean the the only way that their woke ideology uh survives is if they can decouple parents from children you know from children and, yeah. that's, and that's why like the parental 
you know, control stuff in schools is so important. I mean, we saw what happened in the Virginia governor's race when Terry McAuliffe sat on that stage and said, parents don't have a right to decide what's going on in the classroom. And it was like, like hell we don't. Yeah. (laughs) Who the, who the fuck do you think you are? Right. These are our kids. We pay for those schools. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I mean, this seems like simple stuff, but you know, there's an entire woke agenda out there to stop parents from, from having meaningful oversight in schools it seems like just like no-brainer stuff imagine what smug's gonna be like when he has kids i hope he's so <laughs> <laughs> he's, just, he's just gonna be trolling pta I'm, I'm, i mean i'm not gonna be added to merrick's list on the fbi watch list i'm gonna show up to pta beings and be like this is all bullshit <laughs> you like, teach our kids how to shoot guns you like drive around in an f-150 with a flag <laughs> <on the back. laughs> I love it. Uh, what did you guys see? According to the Wall Street Journal, somebody's making a run at Hank. Uh, it's a bear named Otis. He's a four-time champ of Fat Bear Week on Live Cam. The Live Cam must be an interesting thing. I don't know that they have uh, Fat Bear Weeks. So this is a, a couple things. So like uh, McDaniel pulled this from the Wall Street Journal, which is uh, you know thank God their newsroom is now covering large bears, which yeah. is just like you know, I think very we've important paved issue. the way on this is important. And then the image that he included, this bear, I mean, that is an enormous bear. To me, like the ultimate measure of success for a bear, because these things have to sleep for like half the year. Well, that's the thing. That's the thing. I think you bring up a good point, Smug. It's like, I don't think this is really fat bear week. Like they're cultivating mass for hibernation. Like this is gains week. (laughs) You know, like this bear is hitting the creatine. He's got his pre-workout. This this bear is swole. <laughs> a swole blip bear. Dude, this description is awesome. It says he may well be Alaska's biggest celebrity, both in popularity and in circumference. Hell yeah! <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> He's a, a magnificently rotund, rotund brown bear and the reigning king of Fat Bear Week. Uh, it's a March Madness style competition, by the way. Mm. Where they award these these. Fat I mean, that's got to be a hell of a title. It'd be like the largest bear in, in, in Alaska. I mean, think about the size of that thing to take that title. And unfortunately, because of Hank's chosen line of work, he can't publicly participate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like we already know he would give Otis a run for his mic. By the way, what do you think Hank looks like right now? If it's if it's Gaines Week, I mean, who's larger? Is it the brown bears? Hank's a black bear, right? I think he's a black bear, right? One of these like city bears or, or whatnot. I'll look at you judging the I color mean, they, of the bear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we don't see color here in the. I can't remember. I, I think I think brown bears, brown bears and grizzlies, maybe like some 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 of the minions. Someone let me know. Like in terms of like the size chart, who, I mean the Grizzlies the, the, the biggest. Are they? Of the bears. Are they the biggest? Sure. Yeah, they're they're monsters. There's I mean, a this co- guy. This there's, guy I guess so there's enormous. a Kodiak bear, right? But is that technically a brown bear? I don't know. Somebody else knows. Anyway, this thing's gonna give anybody a run for its money because it's absolutely massive. They say it's in his, in his uh, late twenties. Which is like such a measure of success. Yeah. Because like I've been out in the wilds of Alaska <laughs> fighting for my life yeah, for two decades. Late, late, I'm the champ. Late, <laughs> late 20s is basically like a, a boomer bear. <laughs> in, in, their life, in their life cycle, that's really up there. Born in the Clinton administration. So this, <laughs> thing, this thing's pissed. Yeah. Right? It's got a lot of complaints. A lot of complaints. Maybe some social security concerns. <laughs> It's like buying gold and it uses a CPAP. <laughs> oh man, we are get, we're going to get some DMs on that one. Well, get him some relief factor. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the creator. Maybe CoQ10. Yeah. Well, all right. So anyway, the last thing I think we need to hit here, fellas. Mm-hmm. So the Supreme Court is reconvening, mm-hmm. right? Obviously a big summer of talk with the Dobbs ruling, but there was also the Dobbs ruling overshadowed four or five other court decisions that were game changers. Yes. Like long time activist related stuff related to all kinds of different different issues were decided this last term. So of course now the left is just on fire. Yeah. Right? Busily trying to undermine the credibility of the court. Right? Uh, this is according to Reuters. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday opens a new nine-month term loaded with important cases on issues including race, voting rights, religious liberty, environmental regulation, and the power of federal agencies. I'm certain, and I don't know what any of those cases are. I haven't looked into any of them. I am certain that there is a different way of explaining every single one of them yeah. than, <laughs> than l- the liberal buzzwords that were chosen by Reuters. So like, something really weird, and I've, I've, right. I've been tweeting about this, something really weird has been happening over the past few weeks where you've had a number of these like left-wing, they're not calling themselves left-wing, but they're left-wing journos who have been like pushing this idea that the court is illegitimate. Like I can't remember the name of the CNN uh, Supreme Court reporter. Who like Ellen Well, Kagan, it's Yankee, isn't it? Uh, oh no, Jeffrey Tubin. Yeah, Tubin yeah. got. Uh, yeah, he he, he got <laughs> Yankee. <laughs> um, but but they've been they've been pushing this like messaging that like the Supreme Court is illegitimate because they're following the letter of the law when it comes to the Constitution, and they're just, like going after Alito. They're like Alito has injected himself into this conversation about saying that like he he's like well no actually the Supreme Court is a legitimate institution how dare he like. They're starting to, to, to go to war. Like you've seen through, I mean, it's been almost half a year of, of the left sending mobs out to the House of Supreme Court justices and harassing these people, which is, you know, it's against the law. They're intimidating justices trying to get their way. And that's the whole reason they leaked the Dobbs yeah. opinion to begin with. But you're seeing a concerted effort from the left to undermine the last institution in this country which is completely dedicated to following the constitution yeah well so but i in my view the most dangerous thing that they're doing at this point is redefining what left and right is Mm -hmm. in the context of the law right they are trying to make these decisions all sort of in a political right context they're trying to say that this is basically an ideological uh, policy-oriented way, which anybody who's been following the court or conservative jurisprudence since day one knows it's not outcome-based. Nope. They don't rule based on outcome. They Mm-mm. rule on what you just said. Make rulings on the application of the law and the Constitution. And for too long, the liberal left has been getting its way on all levels yep. of government in terms of defining activist judicial decisions as jurisprudence. It's not. Like, this could be, honestly, the most fair and just Supreme Court we have had in the history of this country. No question. I it's don't even think it's close. It's amazing. Like, we are so fortunate. Like, the justices that we have right now are so dedicated to just applying and interpreting the letter of the law. That's it. They're not trying to legislate from the bench, which is what the left has demanded and had their way for decades now. Totally. So listen to a couple of these Washington Post opinion piece. You thought the Supreme Court's last term was bad? Brace yourself. <laughs> That's Yeah. Wow. Right? What a rag. Here's another Washington Post opinion piece. 
a partisan Supreme Court is 2022's other incumbent. Wild. What a total cell phone unmasking of your own view yeah. of what the, Supre- yeah. uh, the Supreme Court is. Yeah, we were told that like the adults are back in charge. So they're going to respect norms and institutions. This is just like an absolute attack on the Supreme Court. Totally. Here's New York Times. The Supreme Court isn't listening, and it's no secret why. Well, okay, here, let's just take the title. It's not supposed to fucking listen. Yeah. That's why they are... <laughs> Why is it the Supreme Court on Twitter and boycotting things that we don't like? The Supreme Court is not your dad. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is certainly not some House member. Right. The Supreme Court did not do a black square on Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing is that, like, the the left is absolutely frustrated because over the past decade, they've had an incredibly successful run of being able to bully and have their way. Whether it's in corporate America, like, over the past decade— the absolute absorption of of corporations into the left has just been breathtaking. The, the way, ESG, all this woke bullshit. Like they had a boycott of, of, of the MLB All-Star game based on their intimidation tactics. And they're frustrated because there's one institution that will not bow to their bullying, and that's the Supreme Court. Yeah, well said. Really well said. Anyway, there's going to be a bunch of important stuff on there that we will follow the arguments and keep you updated accordingly. I felt like we gave you everything we had here in terms of information. I mean, that's I mean, this is a hell of an episode. I hell mean, of an episode. Whew. And, and and again, I can't reiterate, we had Constant and Stephen Law. So you got the Senate map, you got the House map, things are looking great. Again, folks, remember, the red wave is not something that's happening. It's something we're doing. So until next time, Minions, keep the faith, hold the line, and own the libs. We'll see you on Thursday. Stay ruthless. 